podcasting can be bad. Pod podcasting can be bad news. Podcast podcasting can be good news. Podcasting is a bad idea. Podcasting is a difficult prop. Pod tell podcasting is a scary is a scary predict. No, it's a, uh, a po- podcasting is a bitter herb. Pod- podcasting is a dangerous tunnel. When tunnel, when you get out of that tunnel, you've Got bitter herbs. <laughs> this is good. Forget herb, <laughs> I like David. That. I never heard a hit podcast that had the word herb in it. Herb. You know, uh, I say, you know, I say herb sometimes because that's what the Brits say. Yeah. And that I get raked over the coals anytime I I accidentally say herb. That one really amuses people. Ugh. Anyway, that was great, Griffin. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I I practice it with even more stammering, and I got I got nervous. I didn't want to get too self indulgent. Right. But this is for me. Get ready. I'm not going to argue. This is a perfect film. It is hard to argue. Sure. This is a perfect film. But this is a perfect. Movie would be that. That's your. No one's. No one needs right. to be saying that. You can like, love the yes. movie. Right. Yes. This is a movie I adore uh, so deeply in so many ways. And one thing I will say about it, uh, a hyperbolic statement uh, right off the bat. I think this is one of the funniest openings of any movie ever. I don't think there is another movie that arguably gets this many laughs in the opening credits. He- here's my only problem with the opening. It's it's so good. I agree. That you're like... What do you mean people don't like this thing? And then, like, by the middle, you're like, okay, well, I can see how maybe this movie threw people a little yes. bit. Now, you know, I, not, not, I like the movie, but you know what I mean? Like, the opening, you're just like, oh, baby. It, it made me think of Stripes. It is, yes. You know absolutely. what I mean? It's got yes. that same kind of problem sure. where you, like, it sets a certain tone or pace yeah. or feel, and then it's like, oh, actually, we're going to pivot to a completely different movie. <laughs> this is my thing. Like, you guys know, I talked about it a lot. Maybe someday we'll cover it. Sidney Lumet's The Wiz is one of my 10 favorite movies of all time. It is also another deeply imperfect box office fiasco that was raked over the coals when it came out, right? Sure. And I love it, despite the fact that I think about conservatively 50 minutes of it are unwatchable, right? Because it's like the stuff that works in it for me works in such a unique way that's different from any other film that I'm willing to forgive the parts of it that just like actively repulse me. And there's nothing in Ishtar that like feels as catastrophic as the 12 minute let's change what the color in Emerald City sequence is in The Wiz but similarly, the first 22 minutes of this movie, I like as much as I like uh, any stretch in any comedy film ever. And it sets the bar so high that then the Ishtar stuff, which I defend, it's just inarguably not as good as just Rogers and Clark fucking writing songs together. Yeah, yeah. Just, just, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk Telling about the, it. Telling that's the, yes. Podcasting can be dangerous. No, no, no. And just anytime they do that, I'm such a sucker for the like, no, 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 no. You know what it is? It's, it's, it's a, <laughs> it's not, it's something could be good, could be bad news. It's a bad predicament. Uh, folks, we're here. This is this is one of those movies I've I've dreamed of talking about since we started this podcast. Yes, this is a movie we have talked about. Right, 
since before the podcast started, basically. Yeah, the whole time. Because it is obviously just one of the biggest blank checks in Hollywood history and one of the most famous sort of like example movies in terms of its reputation, but also is a movie that I have always uh, defended since I saw it 10 years ago for the first time and was astonished because I thought I, it was just going to be garbage. I just assumed it was going to be straight garbage. And then... Uh, you knew it as the Far Side cartoon. Yeah. The, the the video store from hell where they only have Ishtar. It was the the butt of joke. You you, you learn <laughs> right. like when you're five years old and you learn how to tie your shoes. You also learn like an Ishtar is a famously bad movie. Like and you're like oh yes. okay okay Ishtar I get it. I was talking about it with my sister Romley the other day and uh, she was like Elaine May made movies and I was again like, yeah. she's like what movies did she direct and I just said like Heartbreak Kid Mickey and Nikki Mikey and Nikki. Uh, New Leaf, just dead silence on the other end of the phone. I said, Ishtar. And she goes, oh, I know Ishtar. Right. The, the, the word she knows. Even a 23-year-old understands that Ishtar is synonymous with fiasco. Um, yes. But I saw this, uh, Elaine May. Well, we'll get, we'll get into this, because let's say what this is. It's a podcast about filmographies. I keep on making this mm-hmm. mistake where I say the one thing before the other thing. Okay. It's a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David tightening up that response time a little bit okay look i think it's mostly the just a slight zoom delay but griff did you see this meme in the reddit so funny one of the funniest things our reddit has ever done i i I, and cut this out if it's embarrassing that i didn't get it who 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 is i couldn't uh, put it together in my in my head who i'm supposed to be here i i is it is it about schmidt i couldn't identify what movie it is okay but you just thought it was funny anyway it is funny the meme is like a four-panel comic strip of the Joe Bowen David cartoon face superimposed over the body of a live-action man in three different casual positions. He's like sitting on a bench. He's walking down a street. And then the fourth panel just says, and I'm David. Yes. And the, I take too long. It's you taking your leisurely time to get right. to your name. Yeah. Okay. That's it. I was just like, who, who, I were like, okay, I was just trying to figure out if there was some deeper reference. That's no. all. Okay, carry no, on. I'm David, sorry for slowing David, you down. We need to David, get to you were yes, trying ahead, to yeah. take that meme down Ishtar style. You were like the wasn't, press. I you wasn't. had your knives out. It was an assassination attempt. It was attempted coup. And the fact that it was unsuccessful doesn't mean we shouldn't be taking it seriously. It was the most upvoted post of all time. On our subreddit. Yeah, it's a great joke. It's a perfect joke. It's the Reddit of uh, Ishtar jokes. Uh, it's a podcast about filmographies. Directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce baby. Uh, here's a perfect uh, a case study of that exact phenomenon. It's here's the, the most director. famous bounce. Yeah, the huge, big career. Huge career before making films. Makes two hits. And then makes two colossal failures. But like Mikey and Nikki is a is a, is a financial disappointment. But this is a a a world famous bomb. This is one of the, sure. the most famous bombs. This is at a whole other level. If it weren't for Ishtar, we would say like, oh, Mikey and Nikki is a huge bounce. It's just that Ishtar buried her. Right. Redefines what a bounce could be. Uh, we're of course talking about Elaine May, the great Elaine May. We've gotten to what is unfortunately as of this moment her fourth and final film. Although hopefully. She uh, makes, uh, I keep on forgetting what it's called. Crackpot, supposedly, Crackpot. is what her final, or her next, sorry, movie yes. will be called. But shrug, who knows? Fingers crossed. Uh, it, of course, is a miniseries called The Pod Break Cast, but it was almost called Podcast Tar, because <sighs> today we're talking about 
Ishtar. Now, our guest is being so polite. So good. <sighs> Almost too good. He, we, don't, we don't want him to be good. We want him to be bad. We want him to be a bad boy. <sighs> do you know how hard it is? Tonight, jump in. Ah, that's why. That's why I want you to no, interject. That's a Travis. That's a Travis McElroy move. <laughs> well, that's a Travis, I mean, all I right. can't. You, there's no way that Travis sat quietly before you said his name, introducing when he was no, absolutely not. And like, that's the whole thing. Like, it's just, 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 just burst on in. Oh. I, I don't want anyone feeling, you know, pent up. Okay, good. Well, then I can say. Do you know Gary Larson apologized? I, I do. It's the only time he's yeah. ever apologized for one of his comic strips. Of all the things he's done, he yes. said, that's the one I regret because I did it without ever seeing Ishtar, which I think plays to the whole... I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Get into it. I'm in. I'm in the water. I'm in... Our, our guest <laughs> today is Clint McElroy. Let's just say Clint McElroy from the Adventure Zone. Yay. Oh, wait. Sorry. I cheered myself. I hey, you that. deserve it. Um, I had one of those, you know, you know, far side anniversary books where like Gary Larson offers commentary, right? You know, oh, really? and I remember him apologizing. He apologizes in the, where he's like, I watched Ishtar. It's good. Like, can I, can I read his apology? Yes. It's very good. Re read it, read it properly. Yes. So it's just, it's just hell's video store and the entire store is stocked with nothing but copies of Ishtar, right? That's the whole, the whole joke. It's not his best work. I'm going to no. say this actually. Beyond not liking Ishtar yeah. or liking Ishtar, I love Gary Larson. That one's a five. Not a not enough cows. But he writes, <laughs> "When I drew the above cartoon, I had not actually seen Ishtar. Years later, I saw it on an airplane and was stunned at what was happening to me. I was actually being entertained. Sure, maybe it's not the greatest film ever made, but my cartoon was way off the mark." There are so many cartoons for which I should probably write an apology, but this is the only one which compels me to do so. I do think that's kind of at the root of the entire thing, as that you were is. saying, Clint. Yeah, that's so relative to it, because just like you were mentioning that your your sister, yeah. oh yeah, Ishtar, I know Ishtar, and I think that was what it was. It To me, it's the first time I can ever remember, because, I mean, obviously I was... Uh, alive when the movie came out <laughs> i was alive uh -huh. um i wasn't con you know cognizant of what was going on no uh, and it's the <laughs> first time i can ever remember reviews that started ended and in the middle of focused on the budget oh yeah. it costs so much money to make oh because it it's it, it's you know it, it it wasn't until you know like reviews of titanic that I can ever remember, right. but this was early Water on. World, maybe that's about it. Like yeah. it's that rare thing where it becomes the public discourse for yeah. ordinary people walking into the theater. Is like I heard this thing cost a fortune, and I get if you watch this movie being told it cost a fortune, you might be like, "It did." Yeah. Like what? Why did this cost a fortune? I get that they went to the Middle East, but I mean to North Africa. But like, what the fuck? The whole story about that framing is so fascinating. But let's also just say, David. Waterworld comes out like eight years after this, right? Nine years after this? It's 95 or 96? Uh, sure, yeah, mid-90s. What is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and when the press was writing about Waterworld going over budget and over schedule, they called it Fishtar. Well, that's funny. The it's great. I gave them five comedy points, but the shadow of Ishtar was so large. They did also call it Kevin's Gate, of course. Oh, no, no, that was da Dances, Dances with, with Wolves. Wolves. They called Kevin's right. Gate, right. Because yes, yes. Costner was in a similar position to Beatty, one could argue, where they were like, we're just ready for you to fucking fail, you egomaniac. Yeah, you, you hot 
asshole. You right. think you can make movies and star in them and win Oscars? Yeah, we're coming for you, buddy. Yes. And then Dances with Wolves, you know, is a huge hit. Then they're like, well, all right, you got away with that one, but we're still watching you, buddy. And I think one of the great crimes of, of, of Ishtar and the way it was handled and the way it was treated was that, it, it, to me, a lot of, and, and like you, I love this movie. Yeah. Um, there are things about this movie that are some of the funniest gags, some of the funniest scenes I have ever seen. Um, but the fact that the failure was was laid on Elaine May and that she paid the price for it, it seems. Right. When I think a lot of the problem should have been dolloped on on uh, Warren Beatty. Yep. And and so I it just. That's that's what makes me a little crazy. I think that she made some some mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Um I think that that you know, but the the whole and I'm sure we're going to get into this, but the the whole concept of the movie to me the first half an hour of it is one of my favorite movies of all time. Agreed. Agreed. It's Agreed. Brilliant. That's exactly what I say to people. Let's also just say Clint. Uh this might be the longest we have had an episode with a guest oh on the spreadsheet because it was uh, uh, <laughs> New York Comic Con 2019. Oh, I remember those days. Yeah, I think it was. It's fully like 18 months ago that we like figured this out. Right. Yes. It was like September or October 2019. I think September. And uh, I, I had done the Adventure Zone uh, panel with you guys. And then uh, Travis threw like a little party afterwards, and it was your first time meeting David. That's right. Um, and you came up to us at the bar and said, guys, you've had all three of my sons on. When am I going to get to come on Blank Track? <laughs> and we said, here are the things we have planned for the next whatever, whatever we had on the books at that point in time. We thought we were going to do a lane May, April 2020. What happened? Two things happened. We've gone over too many times. One, we wanted to do this March Madness bracket where it was Razzie winners versus Oscar winners. And Elaine May was the only female who fit into either bracket who we hadn't wow. covered already. So we had to take her Wins out. Wins a Razzie for, for this here movie. For this movie. Right. So we were like, we have to put her in competition. Otherwise, it's going to be even more of a sausage fest than it already is. And also, there was this announcement, or not even announcement, this whisper, maybe she's going to make a new movie with Dakota Johnson. And we said, maybe let's wait and see if she makes this new movie. Then a global pandemic happened, and we were like, maybe let's not wait. Who knows when movies are going to be made? There was a global pandemic? Clint, I'm I sorry, spoilers. I, know I hate I, to break this, too. I, I forgot that you're behind. Yeah, I, I mean, I live in Ohio, so we don't know what's going on. Um, this movie, absolutely, I can remember when it came out and I am going to, I am going to own up to my own guilt. I have had a oh, sense of guilt about this movie because I did not go see it in theaters. Oh boy. Mm. And now here's the thing. I was hooked and I was ready because I loved the Hope Crosby road pictures. Loved sure. the road pictures. After the March Brothers, my favorite series of, of, of movies were Hope and Crosby, Road to Morocco, Road to, to Singapore, Road to Utopia, all that. Absolutely loved them. And then, you know, I had read she's doing a road picture. Uh, and I thought, this is awesome. And I am owning up to the fact that I saw those reviews and I I caved. I was a, I was a coward. 
I was. Don't cry. It's no, okay. Listen, no, it's fine. Come on, I'm trying to be sincere here. No, no, man, this is working. This is working. But I mean, it, so you know, I was fortunate in the fact that I, you know, because it wasn't, it did not run on DVD for years and years and years and years. I mean, they didn't reissue it. It was never released on DVD. It was barely on VHS. It was almost never played on television. It was and played VHS, so VHS is where I saw it. Yeah. And so I and I and it was a revelation to me. And it really the effect that it had on me at that point was, you know, saying, God, movie reviewers stink. That's terrible. Tell me about I, it. I, we I had a, I have a, let me tell you a quick anecdote, a quick story. Is when it about was, how all movie critics are scum? Because I'm ready to agree with you. No, but I will tell you this. We had a local guy. This is when I was going to Marshall University. And, um, the, uh, <laughs> the, the wrath of Khan came out. Mm, great movie. And so I, you know, I had to go see that opening night. And so, uh, we, there was a local reviewer who hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. And so I couldn't go opening night and, but I was planning on going on that Saturday. So I picked up the Saturday morning paper and, you talk about spoilers. And so I opened this guy's column and he says, here's how much I hated Star Trek Wrath of Khan. Spock dies. What? Oh, my God. You Spock can't do that. Spock dies was the second line of his freaking review. Wow. Was he? Was that why he was so mad at the movie? He was just like, you can't do this. Like, I, this is, he this just is went so on to talk about the bad performances and how hokey it was and the overacting and obviously not getting it. But that's fine. If a reviewer has an opinion, that's fine. But that, to me, was criminally irresponsible. Yes. Yeah, it's, that's mean. You can't do that. And I think fitting that, that fits in with, I mean, how my reaction to when I finally saw Ishtar was, Man, why did why did people destroy this movie the way they did? That that was my same reaction, and I'll say when we at at that bar eighteen months ago, when society was still standing, uh, gave you <laughs> before a bunch, the before the fall before the fall <laughs> uh, gave you a bunch of options of like, are, would any of these movies jump out to you? You kind of like said like, ooh, Ishtar. Like when we said Ishtar, you went like Ishtar, and I went like Clint. If you want to do Ishtar, Ishtar is yours. And you kind of looked like both ways around the bar and then said, like, but I'm I'm gonna defend it. Like you you were already yeah. sort of like feeling guilty of just like, are you guys looking for someone to shit on Ishtar? And I was like, Clint, you're booked. It's official. If you're ready to defend Ishtar, <laughs> even if it takes us 18 months, the episode is on the books. Sold. I'll do that. And I can remember when you asked me that, and I can remember my reaction to it. Yeah. And I will be brutally honest. Really? Can you, are you on the level? No, yeah, as, go ahead. As much as I know Elaine May and love Elaine May, I thought, really? A blank check? Did she get a blank check for heartbreak kid and for, you know and and so i think that was me trying to fit that into you know knowing uh, about the premise of the of the show too but she absolutely deserved it and and i hope she does make another movie because i would hate to think that ishtar is the thing that you know canceled her blank check so it was undeniably yeah. a, a very long hold this movie came out when i was 1 year old mm. uh and she's but i mean obviously she did she recovered her career 
with ease. Not with ease, but with, you know, like she obviously should be. She keeps writing. She gets another Oscar nomination. She acts. She gets a Tony. Like, right. There's lots of stuff that she does. But she, yeah, it's her. It's the last movie she made, and it is. It is too bad in a way. As, I mean, as much as I like the movie, let let's lay out some of the the formation of this movie. She sort of lays low after Mikey and Nikki. That kind of wipes her out, and I think that was the first time she had the attitude of it's just not worth it. Movie making is such a pain in the ass. Not worth it to direct, right? So she's you know still doing plays. I think that's always been her sort of safe space of they don't fuck with my words here. I can get stuff up. The overhead is much lower. You know, I have less egos to deal with. Uh, She's got Julian Schlossberg who helps her with those. Um, And then she does a lot of rewrite work. Uh, And sometimes it's credited and very often it's uncredited. But one of the big ones was Heaven Can Wait. Heaven Can Wait is the only one that is credited. And she gets an Oscar nomination, of course. She's also in California Suite, I will point out. Yes. Which she's very funny in. It's not a movie that I love, but she is very funny. And her and Walter Matthau's section of California Suite is the best section. Uh, Hard agree. Um but she's she's this sort of like whisperer of, you know, the elites of Hollywood who are still kind of keeping her employed because they have so much respect for her. Beatty chief among them. Um, so Beatty also has her uh, do a pass on Reds. He has her sit in the editing suite with her uh, with him a lot during post-production. He really credits her with helping that movie come together, helping him figure out the structure of that movie and everything. She also does uh, a heavy uncredited rewrite on Tootsie. So Hoffman has this sort of sense of uh, owing her a favor. You know, there are a lot of stories like that of movies that were kind of teetering on the edge, could have collapsed into madness where Elaine May comes in and fixes them at the last second. What was the movie we were talking about where she came in and she was like, this movie's good? Uh, a Swing Shift. They wanted her... Swing Shift, that's right. ...to write the reshoots for Swing Shift. And she had her famous line that is so good where she said, if you reshoot this movie in this way, you will disrupt the entire ecosystem of the film. Right. Which we just think about all the time. She's someone, and I think it speaks to what makes her good as a director, where it's just like all of her movies have a very well-maintained ecosystem they are very much in tune with themselves on one hand i understand people dislike ishtar because it's just like if if you're just not in on on the first page it's never gonna win you over right yeah i think also how to apart from the fact that people were going in being told boy is this thing a stinker like she has her famous line uh if everyone who's hated ishtar had actually seen it i'd be a rich woman right like you know like a lot but I do think you can boil it down as like, hey, these like they're these dumb lounge singers who are, you know, they get caught up in like a CIA. Like you can you can try to explain what Ishtar is about, but I do think the movie takes a long time to reveal itself in to, and like so you're just sort of puzzled by it for so much of the running time. Yes. Maybe. I'm trying to I'm just trying to understand why it was so noxious apart from we will talk about all the sort of like press stuff that yeah helped yeah um but but another key detail is that uh at this point in time in particular both Beatty and hoffman work very infrequently especially Beatty. Right. this is an era where a major movie star cannot make a movie for seven years and still be considered one of the biggest movie stars uh, you know the world is just waiting for them to return Beatty is the king of that 
the the, right. the 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 biggest one of all. Right. Yes. Right. But but also this is the period where Hoffman takes his longest leave of absence. He right. doesn't make anything between Tootsie and Ishtar, which is eighty two to eighty seven. He just does Death of a Salesman. Death of a Salesman, which which I guess was pretty major and was on Broadway and all that. But yes, he it much like Pacino took a break like that in the eighties. I don't know if De Niro ever did. I guess he's the sort of De Niro kind of kept like working. But yeah, James Caan took that long break. Hoffman, right. Pacino, Beatty. Beatty yeah. is the king of it in that Beatty Beatty had that kind of almost Daniel Day Lewis thing where like whether or not he was actually making the movie, he felt like the engine of the movie. Yeah. Him being in a movie was just kind of a big deal. I mean, that's still true, obviously. If Warren Beatty did a movie today, it would be unusual. He's only done two this century. Right. Like uh, Three you if look, you count the Dick Tracy special. You look at his uh, filmography, right? And he, like, you know, gets started in TV in the late 50s. He starts making movies in the 60s. Sure. He does a normal amount of movies in the 60s and 70s, even if perhaps he does less than other stars who are working four or five movies a year, right? Yeah. But then you go into the 80s, and it's like Red's 1981, Ishtar 1987. He doesn't make a movie for six years after making a film, a giant blockbuster for which he wins Best Director and stars in it and everything. Then after Ishtar, it's three years till Dick Tracy— Bugsy's the next year. Love Affairs three years after that. The weirdest one. Uh, four years to Bullworth. Three years until Town and Country. Town and Country. And then it's fifteen years until Rules Don't Apply. Well, right, right. I mean, he's he's essentially retired now. But yes, but starting with the Parallax View or whatever, you know, like mm-hmm. that's where it's just like Warren Beatty is the auteur of his career, of his stardom, of his screen image. Ishtar well, is yes. very much wrapped up in that, and he's using that to get Elaine May a directing job, and then he's meddling, because he's a meddler. The man's a meddler. He's a famed meddler. He's he's an obsessive perfectionist meddler and an incredibly uh, vain man who never feels happy enough with anything. Who happens right? to be devastatingly handsome and charming. Like, I mean, unfortunately, the man was sure. dealt a full deck. Right. But also deeply insecure and sort of neurotic. All all that, all that joy. And then you combine that with Hoffman, who's also a perfectionist. Yes. And Elaine May, who was also a perfectionist. Didn't didn't she shoot something like 120 hours? Uh, I mean, I I, I read one place where they, they said only Kubrick. You know, shoots My, more. Mikey, Mikey and Nikki is the most film that anyone has ever shot. Is that still true? It was certainly true at the time. I think it still is. And she did a three-hour cut on that, right? And then the studio cut it down to an hour 20. There's like a three-hour cut on all these. But this is the big factor. I mean, you're talking – we were talking about this in Mikey and Nikki, like director uh, – uh, sorry, movie stars who have the reputation of sort of also functioning like directors if they sign on to a film, Right. Their their tendencies, their star power, their brand is so strong that they become a major voice in the whole shaping of a movie. The big thing is that Beatty, after Reds, goes to Columbia and says, Elaine May is a genius. She has helped me out of a difficult situation twice, and both of those movies became beloved, you know, Oscar-winning hits. Um, she deserves to get to make her blank check movie. He essentially says she's never been given the space to actually make a movie properly. She always is surrounded by the wrong people. She doesn't have a producer supporting her. I want to produce her next movie. It's whatever she wants to do. 
I will star in it, so I will lend my star power to it, and the terms are she gets whatever she wants, no questions asked. I mean, that's literally what he says to the head of Columbia, who was a friend, you know, who's like, I want to be in the Warren Beatty business, whatever. But he goes, the deal is anything Elaine May wants, no questions asked. At that point, Warren Beatty has only directed Reds and Heaven Can Wait. He's only produced four movies total. So aside from how controlling he is on every movie he's in, there's four movies he's produced. They're Bonnie and Clyde, Shampoo, Heaven Can Wait, and Reds. So inarguably, his track record was perfect as a producer. All four of those movies are nominated for Best Picture, make a ton of money. Shampoo wasn't, but, you know, Shampoo was a hit. Shampoo wasn't nominated for Best Picture? No, but it got Oscar. You know, it was a big hit. It was still a, it was a big movie. Uh, but anyway, he's like, I know how to produce. I'm going to keep this thing on rails. So he goes out to dinner yes. with her and the Columbia guy and goes like, what do you have? And she essentially says, I was watching those Road 2 movies the other night. They're funny. Someone should try to do a modern one of those. But is that an idea? And they were like, yeah, keep going, keep going. And she was like, well, I don't know, like Reagan intervening in the Middle East. And they were like, sure, keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> right. Well, also, I think she's the one thing she does pitch is, and it would be funny if, if Warren, if you were the Bob Hope, if you were the, the goof... Yes. Rather than the suave guy, like you know, rather than the Crosby, right? And Hoffman was the suave ladies' man because yeah. that, that was the first thing Forky said when I put this on. She was like, "Wait a second, Beatty is the the doofus," and look at he's like a foot and a half taller than like. And I'm like, "Yeah, that's the joke. That's what's funny." Uh, what's most incredible about this movie to me, not get ahead of it, but like there there is a certain odd strain of sincerity and feeling she ingests into this whole thing where i genuinely just buy Beatty being a doofus and hoffman being a ladies man even though it defies all logic like i think i think Beatty is so good in this movie he's so funny he's so fucking funny in this that's but, why it works but it's also like despite the fact that this guy is so good looking he he plays such a dope that you're like well yeah no one would go out with him it's true there's a, he he just like it's that kind of christopher reeve or whatever thing where like he manages to get tap into the sort of big galoot yeah that, you know like that he does not really have but like you know he can use his body and the way they dress him and style him. But also, it's just, it's a very, I think it's a very, very funny performance. Hoffman is the suave guy. You know, Hoffman played suave guys in that weird way. Yeah. But like in All the President's Men, like, you know, he he's arrogant. He's an arrogant guy. Lenny, All the President's Men, you know, like, so that's more believable. He's good. He's good, too. But there's also just, there's that famous story that when uh, Pakula asked him to do All the President's Men, he said, which guy was better looking in real life? I want to play that <laughs> right. one. You know, I do think Hoffman had this chip on his shoulder of being the least attractive of that generation of leading men, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I mean, and he was, yeah, you would make fun of his big nose, I guess, right? Like that right. was sort of a butt of jokes in the day. Yeah, right. And I think he was, I think he was a, an actor. I, yes. I, I, I yes. when, when I teach acting class, I always bring up the story about, especially when we talk about sense memory and the story about Dustin Hoffman being in the hospital room when his dad's dying. His, mm -hmm. his, you know, it's the last moments of his dad and, and uh, his his brother looks at him, and everybody's sad. And Hoffman's looking around the room, and he's staring at this, and he's staring at that. And he, and his brother said, "Dusty, what are you doing?" And he said, "Shh, no, no, no. 
I want to remember this. And what he was doing was right. taking yeah. in the yeah. smell the of the antiseptic, yeah. the coldness that, you know, that's, that's hardcore acting, acting. Um, and, and I've always considered Beatty to be more of a, a movie star. Yeah. Natural camera yes. loves him type right. movie star. Yeah. Yes. And it's just, so you've got to, you got to admit that may, you know, bulk the trend by having them switch things, but are either one of you fans of Elaine May and Mike Nichols? Big time work. Okay, yeah. so yeah, the whole thing was awkwardness. Yeah, everything was based on discomfort. I it, I, I I can remember reading a story, and and this was years and years and years ago, but there was a I, it might have been in the New Yorker, and they were reviewing uh, Nichols and May, and the show that they did. Uh, for nine, 10 months on, on Broadway and how at the end of the first act, they do this Pirandello sketch that it just left audiences mystified and went right to a, to blackout, but they achieved their purpose because it was so awkward and so discomforting. I think that plays a lot into what she thinks is really funny because there aren't, joke jokes in this movie there yeah. are funny lines the only joke joke that i even wrote down was the the thing with the buzzards when they're being surrounded by buzzards even though they're still alive and he says you mean they're here on spec that that you know <laughs> that and, yeah. but it almost stood out in the fact that oh no hey, you're right here's a gag everybody the the scene on the on the ledge of the building Ugh. Is so. I mean, Elaine May could have played that mom part. That was the. Yes. That was the kind of stuff in in the 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 uh, classic bit they did where the where Mike Nichols called his mom. Yes, the where he's the rocket scientist. Yeah, right. Where he's the rocket yeah. scientist, and he says, "Oh, I feel awful." And she said, "Oh, darling, if I could believe that, I'd be the happiest woman on the planet." <laughs> There's not a joke yeah. in there. Yeah, but there's brilliant observation. In there. Well, also, I mean, one of the funniest lines of the entire movie to me is when they're complaining uh, at the they're stuck in the middle of the the desert and the you know because this and this and that and our camel is lying down and he goes well you know I mean I, I kind of respect him for that yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think uh -oh. this is you are getting at something that pro again probably baffled audiences right they may have expected a madcap you know with Elaine May attached. Even yeah. if the, the the as you're saying, like that's not really her style, right? Like, where are the where's the fizzy dialogue? Where what what's all this mumbling and crosstalk and like yeah. weird kind of tangents? Like, I don't get it. I thought this was a a high stakes, high concept comedy. Well, here's another thing. It's like she was part of this legendary comedy duo. You know, they played a lot of characters, but very often their dynamic was the same. Elaine May often played the high status characters mm -hmm. in Nichols and May sketches. As an audience, you very quickly understood how to watch them and how to, or how to listen to them and how to get on their rhythms. Hope and Crosby, those movies were based around what those guys' public personas already were. They were very defined. When they sold, hey, it's Hope and Crosby on the road to blank, the audience could do the math. And then when they showed up in the theater, yeah. that movie delivered exactly what they wanted to see in their head. You are exactly right. And one of the differences was, and I, I admired her for doing this, 
And I wonder, I, I haven't seen the director's cut, so I don't know. I realize it's shorter. Yeah. Well, let's talk about It's this. a couple minutes shorter. Yeah. It's two Go minutes ahead, shorter, and I have seen no account of what the difference is. I really don't know what the difference is. What I've read said that there is very little difference. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the only version that's available to watch now. I also don't think it's an actual director's cut. I think it's branded as a director's cut. Yeah. But I don't know if Elaine May like was like, I've been sitting on my cut for years. No. It's more that they finally no. like mastered the movie yeah. for blue. You know, like they got it all spruced up and yeah, maybe she like trimmed, you know, but like it's not like a fucking blade. Runner. So as we said, it was, it was out of circulation for like 20 years the VHS yeah. had long been out of print. It was never released on DVD. It was rarely shown on TV. Richard Brody wrote an article in The New Yorker on the event of the movie is being aired this Thursday at 4 a.m. It's the first time it will have been on TV in three years. And that was Jeez. seen as a historic moment. Well, the road pictures, the, uh, the big difference, especially in storytelling, uh, the, the road pictures started where Bing and Bob, whoever, whatever characters they were playing, had history together. Yes, yeah. We're in the middle of their relationship. Yeah. This movie makes the choice to start and then flash back to how they came together, which it it, it she makes it work uh, in the fact that they're sitting at the bar and the, you know sentimento and they're they're flashing back to how it happened. Um, but that emphasizes the big difference in the fact that you're right, Griffin. Bing and Bob were always playing Bing and Bob. And you knew it. You knew who they were separately. You knew who they were together. And this movie is not only giving you a new comedy team you don't know, but the comedy team is made up of two incredibly self-serious and vain Serious movie stars. Oscar-winning, right, movie stars who are playing against type. Right. right, massive reputations that precede them and are also playing the opposite of what they actually are, which I think is an immediate moment of like pushback from audiences. And also, neither of whom are singers... Whereas, and neither of them are comedians. They're both piano players. Yes. Right, yes. They're both piano players. But but those scenes, God almighty, are, the scene that uh, you were fantastic. quoting. Where the, and and then that trope, that, that thread continues through the movie because just, when they get in the worst trouble, when they get in the most danger, when they get, they start making a song up about Whenever it. Whenever they riff a song against me, <laughs> any single time, Oh, that's good. Repeat that. What did you just say? Right. When they're like, it's always bad. <laughs> right, right. Always the bad. slowest part of the movie, they don't do it. Yes, there's yes. like a half an hour. Yeah. with all the intrigue and and that's where it kind of bogs down because I think and and again I'm I'm you know criticizing although I've already established what I love about this movie. You've got this whole section in the middle where they they hand the storytelling off. To Charles Grodin mm -hmm. and to Isabella Johnny and and you don't have those those scenes where they start riffing a song and I don't know how they kept from cracking each other up. Can we talk about the songs for a minute? Well, I, I want to get to it in a second because this is the last okay, okay, bit, yeah. bit of business I want to set up, and then we can get into those first. Then there's two minutes, bits of business I want to do. Do do ahead. your two bits. Give me your two bits, and I'll give you one bit. Okay. There's two things. One, I forgot that there is one piece of rat-a-tat dialogue that I do love, which is when the CIA agents are talking, they're like, the KGB are here. I recognize them. Oh, the ones dressed God. as Texans. No, the ones dressed as Arabs. The ones dressed as Texans are Arabs. And yeah. the guys from Turkish intelligence are here. Oh, the ones in the Hawaiian <laughs> shirts. No, the Bermuda shorts. The Hawaiian shirts guys are tourists. 
That's so fucking funny. So to put some punctuation on that, David, the fact that they go through all these, they said, what about the guys in the Hawaiian shirts? They're, they're, they're tourists. The people that pull guns on them are the guys in the Hawaiian shirts. Yes, they're, yes. they're so right. stupid. Yes. Right, their appraisal is also wrong. Um, the other thing is, uh, Richard Brody, you mentioned, he wrote that great uh, account of her presenting Ishtar at the Jacob Burns Center up in mm-hmm. Pleasantville. And I just want this quote that he transcribed from her where someone asked, like, do you like writing best, acting best, or directing best? Yeah. I just have to read her line. It's so good. Yeah. Here's Elaine May. They're really different parts of the brain. Writing is close to acting. In directing, you control. Acting, you can't control how good you are, and you can't control how good you are when you write. You can try to be good. Directing, you can't really control either. But you can think about it. That's her take on what do you prefer the most. She's essentially like... Uh yeah, you really have no control in any of them, but directing you're supposedly in control. That's that's how she feels about the creative process. And and she's a she's a terrific actress. She's great oh, at best. everything she has ever done. And but but here's my point. They get over there and they start shooting. It seems to me that that section that we all love so much, that first 20 minutes, 30 minutes, it's just has such an Elaine May feel to it. Mhm. And then when it goes to the desert, that's where it feels like she loses control. Okay, of, so let me the picture. Let me give you some bits of business here, Clint, because yeah. I did some digging. I I made a little more sense of a lot of the sort of timeline development production stuff on this movie. So the original pitch is, as I was saying, to Beatty and the head of Columbia over dinner. She starts spitballing stuff. She goes, it would be Beatty. He's the dope. The other guy's a womanizer. We'll cast someone against type. Maybe it's Hoffman, right? But Beatty is on board. Columbia, they go like, I don't know if this is a movie, but also Warren Beatty doesn't miss. Right. Let's see if he can get a second big person on board. They go to Hoffman. After she goes away, they give her some money to write the script. She writes it. They bring it to Hoffman. They do a table read with Groden as well. And Hoffman's got his like big mentor. Who's a, a playwright. I forget the name of, but who was like his consultant on everything. You know, the name, Clint. right? Uh, sh- um, Schlist, Schlister, Schlister. It's something uh, like that. Yes. Mm. Um, but uh, he M- was- Murray Sh- Sh- Shiskel. Yes. Shiskel. Yeah. His guru more or yes. less. Yeah. Right. And there's so many stories of Hoffman considering making a movie and then coming in with Schiskel and having so many notes that eventually people threw their hands up or movies that Hoffman did end up making four different directors go through it because no one wanted to put up with him. I remember uh, uh, when we were shooting Draft Day, the, the screenwriters telling me that Dustin Hoffman really wanted to play the um, Franklin Langella role. Right. The, the owner. Right. The owner of the team. Mm. And Ivan Reitman's response is, life is too short to work with Dustin Hoffman, which is pretty incredible because most of Ivan Reitman's career was based on him being able to wrangle incredibly difficult movie stars. Right, you're you're Bill Murray's, right. And he did a Redford movie, he did like three Bill Murray's, he did a fucking Costner movie, and he was just like, Dustin Hoffman, absolutely, and Hoffman like wanted to do it, and he wouldn't do it. Yeah, but Reitman is probably long enough in the biz to know there's a difference between him wanting to do it and him being ready to do what the script is and like show up on the right. Like it's like, no, there's going to be a whole thing that follows that. Right. Um, So they bring it to Hoffman and Hoffman comes back after they do the table read with his uh, uh, Shiskel or whatever his name is. And um, says, here's my thought. I think the first 
25 pages of them in New York are great. I think the movie should never leave New York. Mm. That's the real thing you have here. I know you conceived this as a road to riff, but I think these characters that you've land on this dynamic, this sort of exploration of people who have everything but talent, you know, these sort of marginal figures on the sidelines of the entertainment industry who no one ever considers. And if they do, it's in such a mocking way, doing it with such compassion. This is the movie here. And Elaine May pushes back, and I think it's a little bit just because it's like we're in too deep now. Like, well, the whole thing we sold was the road to thing. And I, I'm interested in America and interventionist politics, and I want to do all this stuff. And they push back a bunch, and eventually Beatty says, look, I have her back, whatever she wants to do. If she wants the movie to take place in Ishtar, it's taking place in Ishtar. And they assume that Hoffman's going to walk, and he signs on instead. And his playwright friend asked him why, and he said, look, I just don't know at this point. I can't go another five years without making a movie. I I can't try to control this situation. I'm going to sign on because it's good people involved and hope that it works. He has that great quote that he gave to what uh, Jeremy, uh, Mr. Beeks, you know, like where he's Mm -hmm. like, it has a statement to make. I love that movie. It's far better to spend life being second rate in something you're passionate about than to spend life being first life being first rate something yeah. you're not passionate about. Like he just loves, as you're saying, like he loves these guys. He loves the concept yeah. of these no talent guys trying their hardest to be the next Simon and Garfunkel. So right, that 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 backs that up. In interviews, when people shit on it, he always goes like, "Look, it's a perfect movie, but I'm really I, I have no regrets about making it, and I would argue that the first 30 minutes of Ishtar stack up against any American comedy ever. And I agree. Right. Yeah, I yeah. agree. But so so it's one of the rare cases where, especially in his leading man days, Hoffman just kind of like throws his hands up and goes like, let's see how this goes. The three of them get $12 million combined, which in today's dollars would be over $30 million before any other costs of the movie are put down. It's a lot of money. Columbia has the exact same uh sort of uh, trepidations that Hoffman did about the story and especially how difficult and expensive it was going to be to shoot but the head of Columbia at that time despite uh you know on top of being uh you know feeling like he owed it to Beatty is also just like I'm going to look like a fool if I say no to this someone else is going to pick it up because it's Beatty mm-hmm. and Hoffman and that's huge and I'll look even dumber if the movie ends up being a hit I guess I should just take the risk Coca-Cola owns Columbia at this point in time. They have some big deal with HBO where like their movies, the financing for the movies is pretty much pre-sold by the HBO deal. Right. So Columbia offers the three of them $12 million combined. I think it's like five for Beatty, five for Hoffman, two for Elaine May. And as the movie starts pre-production and they can see it's going to get big and expensive, you know, they have a hard time finding the right location to shoot and all this shit. They offer to defer their salary and put it into back end points. And Columbia and Coca-Cola, more importantly, says no as like a status thing. No, we're a big studio. We're Coca-Cola. We own a movie studio now. Right. We're not skimping. We insist on paying you too much money. It is. <laughs> it's so wild that these fucking companies buy movie studios and they're like, "So what do you guys do here? You make movies? Uh, we we make soda. Is that any? Is that similar yeah. to making movies? Well, we probably will figure it out, right? It's just the same with the fucking AT and T guys coming to Warner Brothers and they're just like, 
Have you guys seen Netflix? You should do that. You should do one of those. Do you have a Netflix? Like, get that going, okay? All right, I'll be over here. Call me on the phone. I invented the phone. Much like Coca-Cola, I expect that in two years, AT&T will go, this is so not worth it. Yeah, 100%. They'll be like, uh, can we offload the fucking yeah. Warner Media? What is that? Yeah, no, definitely. But this, this is the last thing I want to say before we get into uh, the actual body of the movie itself, uh, especially talking about those first uh, that first New York chunk. Um, the way they structured the shoot, Clint, which I think plays into what we're talking about, is that they shot all the Ishtar stuff first. It was supposed to be right. eight weeks in Morocco shooting the Ishtar. Then they go to New York and shoot all of that stuff and focus on the songs and everything else. Um, and instead, of course, the Ishtar portion of the shoot ballooned out of control. Uh, Elaine May, who is incredibly neurotic, was terrified of the sun. So I think a big part of her not being hands-on directing actors was, by all accounts, she wrapped herself from, like, head to toe in gauze and wore a giant hat and sunglasses. They always said she looked like a stormtrooper on set. <laughs> and had a horrible toothache and yes. wouldn't go see a dentist. Yes. Yeah. Was, like, hiding in a tent the whole time far away from them. But the other part of it is so much of her process, I think, is just, like, this Kubrick, you know, Fincher-esque just do a hundred takes. I'll know it when I see it. I don't want to tell you what to do. I want you to keep doing it until I see the thing I want to see. And I think, like, especially Beatty, but, you know, every, they're just baffled. They're just like, what are you talking about? Just give me some direction over here. I've done, you know, I'm a, I'm a fucking movie star. Like, this is where the, like, well, she's not doing anything, I'm in air quotes, is coming from, I feel like. Yeah. Because Beatty's saying, like, she doesn't know how to direct. I mean, I don't know what to do. I think performance-wise, I always have heard that Beatty is a guy who obsessively demands 100 takes for every single shot he's in. Well, sure. All his movies take fucking forever to make. Yeah, Right. I think his frustration came from, I don't know if Elaine is directing this properly. I think Hoffman wanted more hand-holding as an actor. Mm -hmm. um, but the New York stuff was shot last. Uh, That's You know what? That blows my mind. Right? Because... It, 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 right. You'd think that was the good early days. Yeah, yeah, because the reason it blows my mind is because if they were going to disassociate and if they were going to say, let's just, let's just, you know, go through the motions and get this over with, it would have happened, you know, when they were shooting in the desert. And then because the first 20 minutes, 30 minutes, God, they're so, so into it and they're so, so on it. Oh, that that really does amaze me. That's that amazing. It's it's fascinating in terms of energy, but let's get into this because this is, I think, so often about if I ever were to direct a movie in my life, uh, especially if it was a comedy, but not only if it was a comedy, mm -hmm. I think so much about the structure of this film and the structure of the first 30 minutes as its own mini movie almost and what it accomplishes and how it accomplishes it in such an unconventional way. The opening of the movie is hearing them riffing the song lyrics over just black titles, right? Yep. So funny. So you're getting this tone setting. It's like listening to a Nichols and May album. You're just getting into the rhythms of the patter, right? And the comedy. And, you know, as you were saying, Clint, like, uh, I don't think it's coincidental that all of Elaine May's movies are about duos. And they're about duos with incredibly unhealthy relationships and the awkwardnesses that existed between them. You know, it's two couples in the first two movies and two male friendships in the last two movies. But it's always about her mind comes back to sort of, I think, the same genesis that created the Nichols and May sketches, right? The dynamics of two people driving each other crazy who also can't get away from each other. Um, and you just set that up with that opening. And then you have like six 
lightning fast rocket sled minutes where you see them writing, you see them performing, you see them outside the Tower Records complaining about the fact that they could be as big as Simon and Garfunkel, that dangerous business is as good as Bridge Over oh, Troubled God. Water. And so, all of it, quick, quick cuts, very short scenes. Yes. Boom, snippet, right. boom, snippet, yeah, boom, good snippet. Energy. Oh, now we're over here, now we're over there. Like, like sentence fragments, a thing I feel like people don't even attempt to do in movies that much. I mean, we talked about a little bit recently, Castaway sort of does a similar thing where you're just getting these little glimpses, fragments, and knowing that it's spanning much longer time. And Lady Bird did it well recently. But this is just like, you're getting these snippets. The way three minutes in, the film is already canonizing dangerous business as this important work, right? (laughs) Do you not understand? We could be... Dangerous business is as good as any of those songs. So then they do the show. That's the single. Right. (laughs) They call up Jack Weston. Right, they cold call this agent. So funny! Oh god, so fucking good in this movie. Hysterical in this movie. Obviously, he's in a new leaf. He's he's a, a yeah. long time Elaine May collaborator. Yes, but just like here, he is pouring alcohol into his coffee. Right, his hands <laughs> shaking, trying to take notes. He can't distinguish between what the name of the band is and the name of the location is, and all that sort of stuff. And then he goes there, sees their show kind of doesn't give a shit and says the only place I could get you booked in is like Northern Africa, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, wait, there's one other thing here. I can't remember what it is. Honduras? There's, oh, Honduras. Honduras right, right. or Northern it's Honduras, Africa. Right. right, and they say Northern Africa is safer. That all happens in <laughs> no, the like, But I can only give you the airfare from the Canary Islands. Right, right. You have to get yourself the rest of the way out there. <laughs> right. That, that all happens in six minutes of the movie, right? So that's a yep. really efficient six minutes of the movie. Then they walk into the bar and the flat Flashback starts six minutes in. They walk in the bar. He goes, I need some time alone to think. They're having this depression moment of, is it not going to happen for us? If this is the best deal we can get, is it not going to happen for us? You already feel like you know these guys really well, right? So they walk into this bar. Beatty follows him in because he's such a dope. He he fundamentally doesn't know how to let his friend be alone. Yeah, I want to be alone. Right. Yeah, well, it's the only bar that's open. Right. So funny when he's just standing there. He's that's what cracks me up. Go on, sorry. So then you do the Wayne's World do do. Flashback to how they met. And now you have like 15 minutes of table setting of just, we're going to make you feel like you have lived an entire lifetime with these guys. And it's I will say, right. I love this. This is probably the first point at which audiences were like, I thought we were going to Morocco. What's happening here? Which I will say, in a bad way. No, seeing this movie at the 92nd Street Y, knowing so little about it other than the poster and that it was always called a disaster. When I'm watching the film at this point, I go, was I getting this confused with another movie? Is this not about them going to the Middle <laughs> right. East? It just feels like there's no way this movie ends up with them in some like uh, uh, espionage caper. Um, but yes, in terms of how it was sold, this is incredibly confusing to audiences. Why is it taking so long to get to the point? Um, but I think what it does is, unlike a lot of fish out of water movies, it really makes you feel like you've seen an entire movie's worth of these guys normal life before you put them out of water whereas a lot of movies it's like you're already caught up in the plot machinations when you're establishing the characters you're so aware of the fact that the status quo is going to get disrupted this movie lulls you into a sort of false movie that it's not actually going to be even if that is probably the movie it should be but 
you go into this extended sequence and what is essentially like a love story, right? This mm-hmm. this yeah. platonic love story between these two men, these two guys who don't understand that they don't have it, right? They have everything else. They have the work ethic. They have the determination. They even have a wife and a girlfriend. Yeah. The brilliant Carol Kane and Tess Harper. Carol Kane's right. so funny. You have two Academy Award nominated actresses playing their completely ignored partners. Right. Without a joke between them. Yeah. Not be- a, there's not a joke between them. And and when it's establishing him as an ice cream man who's making up songs and is thinking so hard about song lyrics that he completely blows by these kids yeah. wanting to buy ice cream. Um and then I, I, I know we're we're summarizing, but I've got to point this out because Please. the my hardest laugh in the entire movie, and this is the god honest truth, is uh, when Hoffman is making has made up the song for the the couple that had been coming to the restaurant <laughs> for yeah. sixty years, and the song lyric says, "I'm leaving some love in my will." I swear to God, if I'd been drinking milk, it would have shot out my nose. I would have done a Danny Thomas, Uncle Tanoose is coming. That to me was, and that is so brilliant. It's it's a great gag. And I love, I absolutely love that, that whole sequence of him, him playing the piano and, yeah. you know, even their first couple of gigs highlights a thread. It's the musical numbers in this in this movie are brilliant are incredible. I, I don't mean good, um, but they are, they are not so bad. They're not good. And they're not so good that they're not bad. And it's Paul Williams. It's Paul Williams. We should mention it's Paul Williams yeah. who is, you know, a pop star in his own right is a very successful songwriter for others at this point has become also a bit of a, you know, a public figure is acting in things is is doing battle of the network stars or whatever uh but uh, has created has created a persona yes for himself and also is the main songwriter for the muppets, the muppets. which has a very yeah. similar attitude of these oddballs trying their hardest to put on a show yeah. and that that was another big cost for this movie where every song you hear in this film and you almost always only hear a line or two he wrote the entire song Right. And Beatty and uh And, and they made them learn the learned entire song. Learned how to song. play the entire song. Yes. Right. I mean, they shut down production for weeks so that they could learn the songs. One of the things that I have always said about this movie, and my sons will blast me when they hear this, uh, because I I've been assured they, they listen. Um <laughs> this would make the funniest damn Broadway musical yes. that ever was because the songs wouldn't take themselves too seriously as long as you never had a song that was a serious love song or a you know if you just played those little snippets the the movie is at its most brilliant when they're performing i mean there's there's the one wardrobe of love where i think the lyric is i said honey don't you know there's a wardrobe of love in your eyes i said why don't you come inside and see if there's something your size and it's hoffman playing the piano and Beatty out of focus just eating an apple and tossing off lyrics and hoffman just turns (laughs) to him he goes man when you're on you're on (laughs) (laughs) they're very supportive Mm. of each other this movie is all about partnership and collaboration right this is the healthiest relationship she's ever depicted and you get to that that sequence i mean it's 
right? It's like Tess Harper and uh, uh, Carol Kane. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It's it's Harper and Beatty at that restaurant, and he's complaining about the fact that he was fired as the ice cream truck driver, right? Because he yeah. failed to notice that kids wanted to buy ice cream. He was too busy singing his rum raisin song. Then Hoffman is singing this song for this old couple who he promised, if you come back for your anniversary, I'll write you this song that ends up being about their death, right? And their faces! <laughs> right. Oh, it's such a good Elaine May, like, the camera just slowly pans across the table, and you know what everyone's reaction is going to be, and you're just waiting to see what's the next face, you know, what are the different variations of surprise and fright and what have you. Um, but then Hoffman goes into this fight with Carol Kane, where he refuses to marry her because he's so caught up in his career, right? Yeah. And then the waiter passes him the note from Beatty saying, I'm also a songwriter. I love your song. And Hoffman just lights up. He knows nothing about this guy. He doesn't know this guy's credentials, right? And it's like the prettiest girl in high school just asked him out. And he sees Beatty waving to him from the back of the room like a big galoof. And then it just cuts to them. The place is closed. All the, the tables are turned over. Uh, Can we have another half hour? Can we right. have just another half oh, hour? Oh, that's yeah. good. That's good. So do, do you got, give me one half hour. Yeah, give like me, the give last me a half, half hour. hour. Yeah, the power. Oh, God. And, and it's just Kane and Harper sitting at the table just watching like probably six drinks in. And you're like, these women are done. They're done. It's it's They're never going to get as much love from these guys as these guys have for each other. Uh, because they they indulge each other's dreams. And then just all this songwriting is so fucking good, leading to Harper dumping Beatty and Hoffman having to give him the the talk of encouragement. That great scene of them walking down the street. I mean, all these scenes are like 30 seconds long. They all feel like three-panel comic strips, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're just getting these little glimpses but they both have to talk each other through breakups there's the scene where they go to the bar and Beatty is like well it's easy for you to pick up a girl you know i mean you walk in you're you got the looks you know you got <laughs> he's that, the hawk man right? he's, he's the, the hawk. hawk you know you got you got that face you know real mean looking but with character <laughs> <laughs> barn Beatty just with like a fucking mount olympus ass chin like the most beautiful marble cut face and he's like crystal blue so eyes funny. but that just that scene <laughs> Where, where Hoffman is like improvising a song for this random woman at a bar and Beatty's just standing behind them with her friend and he just doesn't know how to say anything. They're just staring at each other uncomfortably. And then, you know, he's saying like, it doesn't matter. She never understood you. It doesn't matter. And then, of course, when Carol Kane dumps Hoffman, he's suicidal. He goes off on the ledge. And that oh scene is so sweet. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't think I could get here in time. That's why I called the cops, <laughs> right. you know. And when that's exactly what he wanted him to do, he wanted him to call the cops, you know. Well, he didn't even go out on the ledge. <laughs> yeah. Like, he was, like, uh, you know, in his sitting in his window yes. saying he's right. on the ledge. Like, all of that is so, like... I don't know. There's a lot of like truth in the ego of the character. He, he doesn't go there. out into the ledge until the cops show up to talk him off the ledge. Until then, right. he's got a pillow waiting, uh, resting against the windowsill, and he carries the pillow out with him on the ledge. And yep. then his parents show up, and the parents are so telling. And the rabbi, too. don't forget and, well, the rabbi. Of course, the rabbi. But his parents show up in like fur, you know, and like the finest wares. It's so clear because you've already had the scene where Beatty's talking after his Tess Harper breakup about how, like, you know, the plant shut down. They lost all their jobs in the Midwest, so they moved to New York because he wanted to be a songwriter. That he grew up from a much more modest 
you know, family where no one believed in him. And Hoffman has probably been indulged and supported beyond belief his entire life. You and know, that lead scene is so much a May and Nichols yes. sketch. There's the there's the line where he's where he's trying to talk Hoffman in off the ledge and he says, it's, you know, it takes a lot of nerve to have nothing at your age. It's so, and, uh, that's so, <laughs> Oh God. It, that's such a great, so many great backhanded compliments like that throughout the movie that are yeah. just so perfectly inept. I don't mean to be the buzzkill because I love this. Oh, I'm more my. trying to understand why this thing was so reviled. Are people mad maybe that like, Beatty is playing a dope where they're like, don't try and fool us, yeah. Warren. Like, we know you're fucking Warren Beatty. Like, is that part of it that people are just like, you can't smuggle this past us? You trying to sort of de glam. Like, well, I'm just trying to understand. I think it is when people walked in, maybe with that, that, but I think it doesn't take long for the two of them to win you over. I agree. I agree. Yeah. That they okay. really are Lyle and, Lyle and Chuck. I, uh, I, I can remember the first time I saw it, I, I went, wait, why did they make the choice of him being the schmuck? I think there is some resistance there, but I think that goes away. I, 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 no, I find yeah, it completely I disarming, I but I think it probably also had to do with the whirlwind of press leading up to it and how much this was framed as ego indulgence out of control. But is it also just that it's been five years since, uh, sorry, six years since a Beatty movie? And same, you know, Hoffman, it's been a while too. But Beatty especially, the last time he did Reds, he he's so fucking hot in that movie, he wins. Mm -hmm. not, like, is it just that where they're like, excuse me, we've been waiting on a movie where you're sexy and cool. This is not what the doctor ordered. Like, I'm just trying to understand. I'll that's say, all. I think that's a part of it. I do also think, and perhaps it's it's washed away a little bit, but I do think there's a bit of resentment with very serious actors do comedy, you know? Yeah, that's right. That's what I'm sort of, I guess, trying to drill down at is like, right. Is it just that kind of chip on shoulder, like, stay in your lane, baby? I think that's part right. of if it. If I wanted a comedy, yeah, I'd call, you know, Eddie Murphy, whoever the uh, big well, star is. Well, right. the Pauline Kale review is like vicious. And she says, like, I don't understand why this isn't Steve Martin and Bill Murray. You can imagine Steve Martin and Bill Murray doing this in every scene and it would actually be funny. But what's Go funny see about a movie it. with them then, Pauline. Right. Well, I think that's part of the magic of this movie is getting two guys who aren't by their very nature comedians and like Beatty had done heaven can wait but heaven can wait's like a light comedy that's about him being a charming guy you know it's about him being a hot doofus but right he's hot yeah but yeah, but for right. most of it he's not perceived by people he's in the body right. you know so i think he's great movie. you know i think he's very funny in he's that. great in that so funny in that i i think the framing of it of the movie not pretending that he isn't warren Beatty, the comedy coming out of he can't be warren Beatty versus this movie where it's like this guy can't get laid i think was just a bridge too far for people a right. certain degree i think it's uh, we, we we've talked about the thing where like for so long every time meryl streep tried to make a comedy the critics all yeah. said, like, Meryl can't do comedy. Stop trying to do comedy. You now. shall not pass. Do not even try. You Meryl. can't do right. everything. Yes. Yeah, that, definitely that. I mean, it's it's telling that he doesn't do another comedy for 11 years. His next comedy is Bullworth, which is a, a bananas movie and performance. Yes. But, like, after this, he's like, fine, I'll do Dick Tracy. I'll just be literally a guy whose jaw is drawn with a set square who shoots bad guys, <laughs> yeah. who has no internal character. Like, he'll just, that, you want me to be like a cartoon handsome man? That's what I'll do. And right. then he does Bugsy, which is a terrible movie, 
But again, you know, it was a big prestige like I'm playing this serious yeah. guy, this major figure. You know, it's I'm tortured, I'm I'm handsome, I'm a gangster. That movie stinks. He meets his wife and then does a movie about how much he loves his yeah, wife. I mean, that, that like, thing. I, and and am I wrong in thinking that Hoffman's direct movie following this is Rain Man? Uh, that's a good question. That sounds right. That sounds plausible, right? Rain Man's right around there. Let's that he just immediately goes to what everyone wants to see him do, which is just like Hoffman commit Oscar. too hard to you're something. Right, you're right. Next year. Right? Yeah. So it's just mm-hmm. like, I think people didn't like them doing this. And I think the buy-in on it where it's not, like, I, I disagree with the Pauline Kale thing right. of, oh, it's funnier if it's Murray and Martin. No, Murray and Martin means it's less work. You walk into the movie, much like Hope and Crosby, already having their comedic personas, which have been honed for decades in your back pocket. This movie is asking you to actually engage with them as as real people, which is part of the gambit, that you actually need to care about these people and feel stakes when they're talking each other off a ledge, which can only be done if they're built as characters and not just extensions of comedic personas. And I also think the fact that it's two very self-serious, vain, dramatic actors imbues it with a kind of weight and a seriousness every time they talk about their music and their craft. You know, yeah. which is the main thing that they latch onto in this movie is this, you know, the weird kind of poetry of people who have everything but talent, but they have the gift of not knowing that they're never going to be good. I was I've been reading uh, John Cleese's book on creativity. Justin got it for me. It's 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 it, <laughs> it's not a very creatively titled book. It's just called Creativity. But there's a point in there where it says, you know creativity is not the same as the urge to create mm. you know that that sure people may have the urge to create but they you know you, heaven forfend that you ever say that somebody doesn't have a skill at this or a skill at that you 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 know you yeah. you can't say that but the thing that gets me about these guys is they are successful on a certain level and can't live with yeah. it when they do their performance in Marrakesh, they at the the Shea Casablanca, they kill. They real people yeah. love what they're doing. The covers, they're doing their songs, and they're doing their headbands, and they're they're they are really into it. And yet they they get this standing ovation. This this uh, I don't know if he's a sheikh or a sultan or a whatever he is wants to book him to come entertain at his house, and they say we're a hit. They succeed on that level, but they want more. They right. They, they want to be in the window at Tower Records. Yeah, the I Simon mean, and right. Garfunkel thing runs all. Simon and Garfunkel should have gotten a credit. They get mentioned so yes. many times in this to the point where I thought, I wonder what this movie would have been if they had hired Simon and Garfunkel to play these these two characters. That would be funny. That's the only. That's the only counter, to, and it's not even a counter to what you were saying, Griffin, but. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think I think the thing that sunk this movie was the press. I think that that yeah. was what doomed it. And I'm speaking from personal experience. I've already owned up to the fact that I let it, you know, talk me out of it. And and every one of those things in the press was the budget. The budget's out of control. And it, a, a big whatever, a third, a 40 percent of, of that budget went to 
pay Hoffman and Beatty and Elaine May. Right. Not that that was so unusual. Having two big superstars in it maybe was. Yeah, yeah. But if that is what doomed the movie, what if they had made it with Matthew Broderick and Bruce Willis or, you know, it, you know. Sure. It, maybe it would have been uh, given a little bit more slack if it hadn't been a $55 million movie, if it had been a $25 million movie. Yes. Um, yeah. But that wouldn't have necessarily made it a better picture. Let's also say the deal structure and the salaries are pretty similar if you map it onto modern numbers as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah. where it's like, here is Tarantino and two of the biggest stars in the same movie. You're going to have to pay for it. You're going to have to give them creative freedom. But no one questions that because the movie worked, right? If it doesn't work, people say, how dare you pay Hoffman and Beatty to be in the same I will, Right. That's right. That's fair. That's fair. I will say, I mean, there's the other context that when they get the deal, Guy McElwain is in charge of Columbia and he was Warren Beatty's publicist, like in the old yes. days. So he is like their pal and he's like yeah okay sure give them whatever they want right you know like and then while the movie's getting made he gets fired and david putnam is installed and, oh, and david putman is like this thing's let's, this thing's let's a loop back around to this okay because the putnam thing has to be its own sort of chapter yeah okay i think we should go to ishtar because you yes. get the the window slowly talks him off the ledge. It cuts back to the bar. They're out of the flashback. Let's do it. Let's go to Ishtar. And at minute 25, the movie essentially starts for the second time, right? Mm -hmm. It's the sequence that most movies would have used as their cold open. Or this could be five minutes in. Like after Jack Weston is like, well, there's right. this. And then it's like, okay, cut to this. Yeah. Really, really quickly, I just want to say because I don't think we get as much of it in the the like the next section of the movie. The fashion, oh. the 80s fashion, like we've said, the yeah. headbands, but like the suit jackets, like it is amazing. Everyone is dressed in this New York section to a T. It's so perfect. I, I was like pausing and taking like pictures <laughs> with my phone of like looks. Because I was straight up like, this is fucking amazing. And I just wanted to throw that in there. I didn't want to derail The bands much, but... at the Song Mart. Oh. The, 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 what, the uh, screaming honkers and the swing and the teacher's, what was it? Teacher's daughter. Yeah. Those, they're, they're dressed. It is, it's hysterically funny. That's also such a good cut when you have all, like montage, all these full bands. Yeah. And then it's just Rogers and Clark with a bongo drum on a stand, you know? Um, uh, uh, Beatty's uh, uh, earmuffs with the furry, like he's got that like furry fedora. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. one of the best looks when they're outside in the winter. But yes, then you do this card cut to Ishtar, right? Which is like, it feels like the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. Suddenly it's an entirely different movie. And I feel like a lot of comedies that are fish out of water start with the serious thing like this. Then they go like, but where were those two men cut from come from? And then you do the comedic cut to here are two goofuses. Yeah. Or or another one was, we're never going to Ishtar. Right. 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 Cut and they're getting off the I'm plane. I'm not a hundred bucks. There's no way. Yes, that you could do that. Right. 
this is like 20 minutes of presenting two pathetic guys to you, making you care for them, and then saying, now never mind, they're going to go <laughs> get caught up in an international espionage case. Right. But now it's like dead serious, sweeping score, these beautiful vistas of the desert, and there's the map that could help liberate the people of it. Yeah, it's right. It is maybe one too many things to keep track of, you know, between the the map and the FBI, the, the CIA. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I, I think the convolutedness is the point. That's part of the joke. Mm. But I, maybe that's kind of, you know, you do... You do kind of just have to be like, I don't know, who cares? You know, like, rather than trying to right. keep track. Yeah. The, the, I mean, I, I feel like the Grodin character is where they most successfully he, so set the audience expectations for this. Because he's sort of like J.K. Simmons and Burnett That's the reading, comparison he's kind I was going like, to make. The That's... point... Right. The point is, I don't understand any of this. The, the the ending of this movie, Burn After Reading, is the same ending where he's like explaining it all. And the guy's like, what? And he's like, look, it doesn't matter. Anyway, we have to uh, we pay fucked for up. their album. I, I, like, close the book. Right? <laughs> yeah. And, and has become a big supporter. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's the single. Yeah. That's the single. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Right. But now this movie is like, whereas before the movie has been moving so fast, but with like backstory and character development movements. Yes. Now it's does slow down it's slowing down but it's also loading us with a lot of plot information you know they get to the airport they get their passport stamped immediately isabella johnny's there Mm -hmm. pulls up her shirt to reveal that she's a woman i a a bit that i never (laughs) fully get that they're all like this is obviously a teenage boy i'm like is it obviously a teenage boy it kind of looks like a lady to me yeah, it kind of looks like uh, international superstar Isabel. Of course, she's like dating Warren Beatty at the time. That's another thing that'll hurt you right. in the press. Obviously, is like, oh, yes. he's got his ingenue girlfriend in the movie. Like, you know, all right, Warren, right? Who at this point has already been nominated for two Academy Awards and held the record for thirty years as the youngest ever Best Actress. Is it, is it Winslet that knocks that off, or someone? I think it's Kate. No, Wayne, it's no? it's for lead. It's uh, it's uh, Keisha Castle Hughes. I think is the oh, oh, she's the youngest first time nominee. I thought you were. Oh, that's crazy. Yes. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, weird bit, though. Wow. Yes. It's like very weird bit. Really weird. Uh, well, it gets so repeated weird. later on. I was going to say. Later on than the same, except it's it's Warren Beatty wrestling with her. And are those breasts? Yeah. Yes. It's, yeah. It, and then she kisses him. And it reminded me of the, 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 black, adder, the black adder scene. Well, Bob. Uh, Bob. You're a boy, right? Bob. Bob. Um, but but she plays an important part if you're still yes. trying to make the connection to the road pictures because she's basically Dorothy Lamour. She's right. the woman that comes between the two of them and and kind of drives a little bit of a wedge between them uh, and doesn't get resolved until later in the movie, which was pretty typical for the Hope and Crosby, you know, movies. They were always buddies, but they're always kind of competing for the same woman and while they don't really, and that's a big part of, of this relationship too. I think you've got Hoffman saying, you know, and later on where he says, Oh, she chose him, you know, and, and he's obviously jealous. My girl. No, I think, you know, that, that whole, my girl, no, she's my girl kind of thing. Right. I, I do like watching it. I feel like, you know, this bit, you go like, oh, fuck, what kind of gay panic shit are mm. they going to get into? But both times, I think they thread the needle pretty oh, well. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, as weird as the boob in the airport moment is, Hoffman's response is, I'm not gay. Look, 
I, I, I'm not apologizing. I'm not proud of it. I'm not that, that bit murders me. I'm it's not so judging. Funny. Right. He's, embar- he's embarrassed. Like, look, I wish I was gay. That'd be very cool of me. Right. I, he's know. embarrassed that he's straight, but then he corrects right. it with like, but I'm not going to apologize for him. Right. <laughs> right. And then, and then with Beatty, it feels like he's having like sort of like a moment of self-discovery. Yeah. Right? Like, yes. He doesn't rebel against it. I mean, he has a thing where he's like, you're such a soft combatant. You yeah. know, like, your body's so soft. Your complexion, I mean, what what do you do to your skin, you know? Uh, but it's it's an odd double beat, just especially because Isabella Johnny uh, reads very feminine, despite the fact that she's wearing male clothes, and they talk a lot about how they had her redub most of her dialogue to lower her pitch. It doesn't really convince no, you. No, she's a, a very, a famously beautiful actress. Yes. She's very striking, yes. It's also just another strange element of this movie. Obviously, her and Beatty are together, as you said, David, but, like, if you're if you're looking at her as, as the Dorothy Lamore, the movie, Clint, to cast like this very serious art house French ingenue who is mostly known for her tragic pathos in the role and play it entirely straight is an interesting calculation. And yes. it's not until the end that she, you know, where she says, I think they're amazing. You know, she, right. yeah, she's fallen for both of them. You know, which I think is a lovely moment, yeah. but it's also up until that point. I mean, there's that scene where she's talking to the guys and, and they're saying to her, like, you need to take these two guys out. And she has that sort of pause of like, I understand the correct choice is to let two men die instead of a thousand. But that doesn't make it any easier. Right. You know? Yeah. And and I think she plays it. She plays it well. I am. Um, yeah. Uh, Yes, but but is not giving a comedy performance, which I I like, but is another thing that probably makes people go, "What the fuck is this movie?" Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Uh, but yes, she she has asked Hoffman for his passport so she can travel uh, to tra- and gives him the backpack, which he doesn't realize is the map. Because um, that that's the thing you should do at airports, right? Even swap still backpacks. to this day. <laughs> Right, just swap backpacks with the stranger. Yeah, right. Give a stranger a passport. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, right? That's just like that's just the thing we all should do. But then Grodin comes in almost immediately oh. after that, right? Because they and steals can, the movie. Yes, I mean she convinces them. Yeah. She convinces Hoffman that it's gonna be very easy to get new passports. Then you cut to the embassy, which is surrounded by armed guards, <laughs> and the guy's like, "Absolutely not! Absolutely not by oh, Monday!" What have we done? Oh! <laughs> and then there, there's such a good like three panel comic strip gag where Hoffman gets up and performatively, because he's still pretending like he was mugged, punches the wall. He punches a hole through the wall because the Ishtar embassy is so bad. <laughs> then you see a guy poke his head out. And then yeah. when they go into the shot reverse shot of their coverage, you see the guy in the other office trying to repair the wall. Yeah. And the reactions of the guys in the background while all this important stuff's going on. Yes. Kills. It kills. So funny. So funny. But now they think like, oh, Hoffman's going to be stuck. Beatty's going to have to do the show without him. Beatty is in over his head. I mean, it's one of those things that that uh, Hoffman says to Carol Kane when they're breaking up of just like, you don't understand. I need to be there for him. He cries like once an hour. He's so protective <laughs> of this guy. Um, but so uh, Beatty goes off. Hoffman feels like I'm just going to be stuck in Morocco for the next week or whatever. But then Charles Grodin finds him at this bar and, and circles him like a hawk. Yeah. 
Gurdon and is so funny. Handles him so brilliantly. So good. Um, I could watch a whole yeah. movie about the Grodin character. Like, not that I need to, but you know what I mean? Just him being a bumbling CIA agent is another. That's great. Let me watch that, too. It is the, it is the only reason the Ishtar section of the movie stays yes. afloat, stays as afloat. far as I'm yes. concerned. Yes, you're exactly right. right. He's the right. he. They give him the best gags. Right. And he basically is the plot driver. Um, and 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 he frames it perfectly. I mean, his reactions are the right comedic grounding for these two guys shouldn't be in this movie. His befuddlement, his anger, his sort of like sliminess. I mean, the fact that, uh, you know, he understands the ego of a failed entertainer so badly that he knows the play is to make Hoffman feel like he is important. Mm-hmm. right that he's a major figure even though to everyone else he's saying these guys are pawns the guys don't matter they're just the two guys who happen to be in the place at the time and the scene where he meets him in the restaurant and all the waiters are spies and as soon as hoffman walks past them to get to the table they're like you know holding up radioactive <laughs> yeah. you know geiger counters and trying to find lint on him and then they snap back into character is it's something like you would see in a mel brooks movie i mean it's it's hilariously funny and the thing with the pen well i was gonna say he gives him the pen because hoffman says he really likes it groden says like take it take it fine take, it, take, take my it. pen i don't care and then in that second dinner scene he starts repeating the things back to him word perfect he's like how do you know he goes the pen the pen the yeah. pen was a microphone a, a, i was yeah. fine to you and, does, <laughs> and it does it to him again but the casualness of which he does it is yeah. so funny. It's very offhand, and that's a brilliant way for him to handle him in the fact yeah. that, oh, no, no, it's, you know, standard operating procedure, you know, but you're a spy now, you know. But, but I mean, even beyond the Isabella Johnny of it all, I feel like that's one of the things that really drives the wedge in between the two characters is that Grodin takes him seriously, quote unquote. Yes. Which makes Hoffman feel like, am I better than... Than him, could I be a major player? Is he holding? Me I back? will say, I understand that this is crucial to the Hope and Crosby thing, right? They do need to mm-hmm. have their second act divide, but because the first act is so good at selling me on them, I don't like it. And maybe that's yes. my problem with the second act. Like, and it's you not want a them huge to be friends. I want them to be friends, but also like I'm so in on their dynamic. Them, yeah. them disrupted is less interesting to me. Like I wanted more of Agreed. their dynamic. The the concert scene is great. I mean, like, just Beatty floundering with his pre-scripted crowd work, even if they don't respond the way he wanted them to, you know? And it was like the Bugs Bunny cartoon where the crickets, you know, sh- sh- yeah. Yes. Well, he says, I'm going to play some songs by a couple guys you might have heard of named Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, you like yeah. them too? And there's nothing in between. Simon Chan and Evening! Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Smoke on the water! The fact that people won't stop yelling out suggestions like it's some shitty improv yeah. show. <laughs> Those are some good ideas. But, but then, as you as you said, Clint, Hoffman comes in, saves the day, and they kill. Like, this should be it's enough a for sweet these guys. Moment. They, it's, they so killed, but that's not what they wanted to do. And, and to be honest with you, if you look back... Um, um, Hoffman's performance in the piano the, in the Italian restaurant where, he, I mean, if you look, he's got a tip jar full of money. Yeah. And people are liking him and responding yeah. to him. Maybe they're not loving him. And the waiter keeps crashing into him with silverware and shit. Sure. Um, but, you know, they, especially 
Hoffman has met with a certain level of success. If they would just be happy with that, you you get the feeling that they would have killed it at Shea Casablanca for the whole whatever it was, nine weeks, eight weeks, whatever it was they're going to do. It is, right. But it's it's this thing where it's like they don't want to be entertainers. They want to be artists and they want to be looked upon with awe, you know? Um so let's but, talk but yeah. about that for a second, because this to me is a very important point about this movie mm-hmm. is the fact that, uh, you know, I, I admire the thing that makes them admirable is their passion. They are passionate about this. They are, this is what they want. And it also stems into that whole Lane May awkwardness thing is, you are sure they're never going to be right big stars. And Their yet, dream will not be realized. Yes. Right. But at the end of the movie, well, I don't want to give away the end of the movie. Well, oh, go ahead. It works. It works. They, and so it, I think it's a comment also on it, but getting deep here on popular entertainment. I think it's, it's, it's a comment on the music industry. Um, which is obviously in the 30, whatever, some years since this movie came out has just turned on its ear four or five different times. But the fact that, you know, that nobody's ever going to say that they are incredibly talented and that they're brilliant performers. uh, And yet they do succeed. I can remember the first time I saw the movie afterwards, I said, I don't know if they'll ever make a sequel. But by God, I'd really like to know wow. what happened to them after this. I, I I think that's part of her sort of like her edge in this movie is recognizing there's not a major difference between the American government and the American entertainment industry. Yes. Yeah. That they are both just about big money bluffs, right? They're people faking their way and convincing people they know what they're doing to higher and higher levels of power. The ultimate joke that they finally get a record deal and the record deal is with the CIA <laughs> is just so deeply funny to me. The only way these guys can get an album released is through like a government overthrow. Yes. Yeah. And David, the the photograph of the the Tower Records window, mm-hmm. it, it maybe that was Elaine May follow up because isn't there a sign on there that says something about now at a reduced price? Yes, or- it's so funny. I I was trying to find right. an image for for my background, but this movie is so, not. And yet here's this huge display in this in this Tower Records. God bless them. We miss them. So R.I.P. Yeah. Um. So obviously they're still the the government pushing it, but they've got it at a reduced price. So you know, um, well, and it's one place of in the back I mean, in the discount rack, like another can of peas. We're jumping to the end, but uh, you know, it's like you you start close up on oh here they are in the window, the exact thing they dreamed of, and then when you pull out, you see the reduced price sticker. <laughs> But you don't see them. And that's the last shot of the movie. The credits roll over that. And part of the beauty is you just imagine they don't care that the album isn't selling. Yeah. They wanted that. What they care about is that it got in that window. Yeah. Yes. Right. Sure. They, yes. they, they don't care that they didn't get it through talent, right? That they got it through essentially blackmailing the American government. They don't care that it didn't sell and no one likes it. They don't want money. They have no, no. They, don't seem to, they don't strike me as people who would know what to do with a lot of money anyway, right? Like, it's not like if they were suddenly rich, they would be like, oh, great, I want to buy this big house. They just, as you say, they want money. 
the the ineffable cultural credibility of of a Simon right. and Garfunkel. They want to be seen as big deals, and yeah. that's why Hoffman is so susceptible to Grodin's, uh, you know, uh, conversations. But that that drives the wedge in them. I agree that this is the least exciting part of the movie. You get some fun bits like the Frewer Bermuda shorts thing, but oh. then you. Like like a oh casino Roy, like the finale of Casino Royale when they're running through the marketplace and there's cowboys and there's you know people well, in fezzes and just the thing of like okay I'm spying on you oh but I'm not right yeah, the back yeah. and forth of that like oh I'm doing something normal always this movie funny. crushes it it's yeah. so funny it's so funny my God. Ben liked Ishtar. <laughs> I like Ishtar. I never saw it before. I mean, it was weird as hell. Sure. I was like, what is this thing? And I knew it was bad going into it, or at least that was the... Right, you knew the rap. That's what everyone said about it. But there's so much great stuff in there. It's just... And I, it's challenging. It doesn't hold your hand at all. It doesn't. So I so I saw this in this. It was going to be released on Blu-ray after being unavailable for 20-plus years. And then Sony canceled the Blu-ray release like two months before it was supposed to come out. Then Elaine May went and screened at a bunch of places. I think like that Jacob Byrne Center screening that Richard Brody wrote about, this nice Second Street Y screening that I went to, and then it finally ended up coming out on Blu-ray a couple years later. And now it's back in, you know, uh, the the cycle of availability. Yeah, I've got it. I, I bought it. Uh, but but at this Q and A, someone asked Elaine May because this is the next main section of the movie. Them with the blind camel, right? Right. <laughs> Warren Beatty is told you have to get a blind camel, which is probably code that he takes literally. Mm-hmm. And so he ends up with this camel that can't see. And you watch the camel performance in this, and you just go like, "How did they pull this off?" She's not a director who relies on editing a lot other than in montage, you're mostly having unbroken two shots where they're moving through a marketplace or an open desert and you're not cutting around the camel and the camel is somehow always doing the funniest possible thing at every Mm -hmm. moment, looking in the wrong direction, pulling them the wrong way. They're reacting to the camel perfectly. And someone in this Q and a asked her, how did you get that performance out of the camel? And she went, I don't know. I don't remember. (laughs) Cool. And whoever was interviewing went, wait, wait, but no, but the camel hits like all these specific marks. They're very like impeccably timed jokes around the camel. You don't remember. And she went, I don't know. I probably just did enough takes until it ended up doing what I wanted it to do, which is a great explanation of how this movie costs Mm -hmm. so much money. Yeah. Elaine May in the middle of the desert with two of the biggest movie stars alive and a camel just saying like, I don't know. We'll just keep shooting film until the camel gets one take right. The camel that they had so much trouble finding because yes. you had to find a blue-eyed camel. You had to find a blue-eyed camel, so they, they sent whoever it was, the production guys, to go find a camel. They go to this Wait, one. you can't put contacts in a the camel? They're big. They're really it big. It would be like I, a teacup. Okay. So they All go right. to, to find and they find a blue-eyed camel. And the, this guy, I don't remember what the amount was, but he says, yeah. And they say, well, we're going to keep looking, you know, like they're in they, New They York. were trying to hardball a guy, right? Yeah. So, well, we'll, we'll come back. And they, so they can't find another blue eyed camel. And they come back and say, okay, we'll take him. And they say, ah, it's too late. We ate him. <laughs> they ate him. They did not realize how scarce blue eyed camels are. And in the four days they went looking for other camels, the original seller 
ate him. I will say, bad move by the original seller if they're rare. Eat another camel. Absolutely. Why are you eating the blue-eyed one? Absolutely. Hey, all right. Also, maybe they're hungry. Well, they might have been hungry, and if so, that you know, that's how the cookie grumbles. I mean, that makes but sense. But that that whole scene where they're haggling for it, um, he's supposed to ask for somebody named Muhammad. So he goes to the the used camel dealership and says, "Muhammad," and like six guys say, right. "Yeah, I, I'm, I'm right. Muhammad." And they said, uh, "I, I want to buy a blind camel." Yeah, I can get you a blind camel. Do you want a lame camel? And then the joke: Would you like a dead camel? <laughs> what kind of stock do they keep at this place? That moment where the guys huddle with each other and they're like, wait, this guy likes shitty camels? <laughs> like, we're going to make a million dollars. Can I just read an excerpt? This is from um, Peter Biskin's uh, Warren Beatty biography, mm. uh, Star, which has some of the best writing on Ishtar I- I've ever read. And there's a good Vandy fair piece from 2010 where they excerpt just kind of the Ishtar section mm-hmm. of it. Um, they they wanted to shoot the film in Los Angeles. Coca-Cola had frozen assets in Morocco that had to be spent there. So Coca-Cola forced the movie to be shot in Morocco so they could spend that money, right? And to be clear, this is... Elaine May has made three small budget movies that are basically set in New yes. York City. Like there is, I lo- I love her, and she's so incredibly talented. But she's never made a movie this kind of scale. No. So I'll just read this verbatim. It's supposed to be ten weeks in Morocco, right? But but at the time Ishtar began production in October 1985, Morocco was not the most hospitable location for a major Hollywood film, especially one that featured a rich Jewish movie star. On October 1st, Israeli warplanes had bombed the headquarters of the Palestine Liberation Organization close to nearby Tunis. A week later, most likely in reprisal, four hijackers from the Palestine Liberation Front seized a cruise ship, the Achille Lauro, uh, yeah. and dumped passenger Leon Klinghoffer, a Jewish-American, overboard into the war waters of the Mediterranean after shooting him dead as he sat in his wheelchair. To make matters worse, the Moroccan government was involved in a protracted struggle with guerrillas at the Polisero front. The air was alive with frightening rumors. We heard there were armed Palestinians headed our way, recalls Silbert, who was on board as the production designer. There we were with Dustin, who sort of stuck out. According to one source, we had been looking for locations when this extremely agitated Moroccan general came rushing up. You have to wait for the minesweeper, he shouted. There are mines all around here. You could lose a leg. We had been walking for three days at that point. Everyone went white. Can you imagine if you're shooting the Morocco section of the movie first, and that's pre-production that happens, what the mood must be like on the film? Yeah. And she wasn't getting along with her stars. The cinematographer. and Or, or Vilma Shigman, right, yes. And and I mean, in some accounts I read, she, you know, the, her relationship with Beatty was starting to fall apart. Beatty started pushing back and trying to, I think, kind of defensively to cover his ass, wrestle control of the movie away from her. But it's it's yeah. the classic Beatty thing where the studio's like, well, do you want to fire? We'll fire her. And he's like, no, no, that would make me look terrible. No, no. I'm a not, feminist. No. I'm a feminist. I'm a feminist. Yeah. Right. I'm a liberal feminist. Right. I'll just try and ghost direct the movie kind of right. while the movie's happening, which is what he does with Bugsy. It's like, he, he and he has this line it's, I think it's on Bugsy where he's like, yeah, no, I mean, if I'm in the, in front of the camera so much, I don't want to direct. That's too much work. And it's like, he obviously does all the work anyway. Like, he just yeah. wants to boss everything around. 
He he had a line before Rules Don't Apply when people asked him why it took him so long to make a movie. And he said, making a movie for me is like vomiting. You don't right. want to do it. You try to put it off for as long as you possibly can. And then when you actually do it, it's restorative and you feel better. But yes, I mean, that's 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 a good I, I just think I think he refuses. He does everything he can to avoid having to officially take that job title, even if. Yes. Whenever he stars in a movie, he's going to end up doing a lot of the work. Right. right. But like the story of this movie is really it's like you have these two massive egotistical perfectionist stars, this writer director who's famous for kind of like, you know, being very finicky on set and and clashing with the studio and all that. And like Columbia is like. I don't know, guys. And they're like, yeah, we don't know either. And like, it just sort of happens without, with everyone kind of knows it's going to go wrong, it feels like. Yeah. Well, you know, while it's all coming together. Right. You have a major company who are neophytes in the entertainment industry who have right. bought this studio and want to Bigfoot everyone and be like, no, we make big movies. We give our stars what they that, want. That, that thing where Hoffman's like, well, maybe you don't pay me as much. And Coca-Cola's like, we're going to pay you more just for saying right. that. Like, you know, right. just all the, well, maybe we shoot it in L.A. Absolutely not. The, 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 the plane is gas. Get to Morocco now. Who cares if there's international conflict brewing across the entire world like and and it's just like ah they 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 should have seen this coming they see it coming and then the minute it starts being tense the studio's like well this thing's a fucking disaster like we got to bury this thing right uh and this final section of the movie where it was supposed to be a much larger action sequence and Beatty essentially went to elaine may and was like i really don't know if you know how to handle this you should let me direct it and she pushed back so they just shrunk the sequence to essentially one bazooka yeah apparently the the battle scene confrontation was a huge yes breakdown and yet they were still able to go back to new york and shoot the best shit ever and shoot the best part of it ever (laughs) everything about the production stories you would it just it has to be that the sahara was last and that's where everyone's not talking to each other anymore fuck you elaine may's like can we can we move this sand dune and people are like what is she talking about camels are getting eaten and you're like oh my god and instead they're like anyway let's get back to new york and knock out beautiful material but i think something about the tensions being that high by the time they get to new york gives it this weird depth of feeling you know I mean, there's nothing true. flippant about it um but i mean groden is so much of this last chunk of the movie is just saved by the cuts to groden in that one office oh, set so good i mean he's <laughs> he's at like a phone console that looks like it's out of a laughing sketch right, right? exactly yeah, it does and it, you 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 imagine Lane Mabe just being like more, more, just do shit, yeah. just, just, just be funny. He's so funny. Well, they give him some of the best lines. I mean, the the thing about the um, tell the camel to move one foot to the right. Tell the camel to move <laughs> yeah. one foot to one, the right. Mo- mo- Why mo- she? It's standing on my foot. You yeah. know that, which is, I mean, kind of a, an expected thing, but it's still a great joke. It. it and I have to go back because there's one thing we skipped over, and this was one of Hoffman's funniest lines when they were talking about Isabella Johnny's character, and, and he said, uh, "So she's a suspected terrorist." And then he says, "Well, granted, but that doesn't mean she sleeps around." Yes, God, so many of those, those little lines are just so good. But yes, I mean, 
This section, them being stuck, surrounded by vultures with a blind camel in the middle of nowhere. At least you're getting the magic back of these two guys together riffing songs, right? Yeah, yeah. And and that's when it starts working again. When they're out in the desert and they're crawling along, they just had this big fight. And, you know, this is where they, they're starting to bring the, they're getting the band back together. And they're crawling around in the desert and they start songwriting and... I don't remember which one of them says it, but they say it sincerely, which is how all of their good stuff works. He says, this is some of our best work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's that whole exchange with Hoffman telling uh, Beatty to stop wearing the wrap around his head because it will dye his face. And yeah, he goes, his face is going to turn who blue. Who cares? No one can see us out here. They constantly, in the middle of being caught up in this geopolitical nightmare, they keep on saying, like, God, if the press gets wind of this, it's going to tank oh, our yeah. careers. That, that kills me anytime they do that. Yeah. Just that the idea that the press is hounding them, like, that it is yes. following their every move, waiting yeah. them this for kind of reputation. Can really sink some guys, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's can, oh. can we talk about the the auction scene? The au- sure, yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I want to know what you guys thought of the the auction scene. I mean, I love it. I love the idea of shady like affairs happening in a sandy, hot desert. Like, yes, I think that it's, rules. It's funny, but it also is. A thing that hasn't aged well. The gibberish yeah. thing doesn't. That's age what I would. That well, yes, right, right. Right. Because I would say, weirdly, the rest of this movie aged pretty well for a yes, movie yeah. about Middle Eastern relations in in the era of Reagan. I think it's in certain ways uh, was very on point, and I feel like there's because even, it's so scathing about America, partly, and, right? And, you know, yeah, it's about blundering idiotic Americans on every level, the CIA, but also these guys, right? And the fact that it's on the side of a downtrodden people trying to overthrow an oppressive government, you know, it doesn't just sort of blame. Uh, uh, paint with a wide swath that's sort of like everyone there is a scoundrel, you know? Yeah. And and I think I think you're right, Ben. I don't know if they could get away with that scene if it was a movie that came out today. But no. you know, there's that that is not condemnation because there's a lot of movies that are so close to my heart that would wouldn't, you know, couldn't get made today. No, and no, I don't no, know no, if that... no. I don't think so at all. It's also thematically them coming together again and doing a double act again is crucial. Like that's what's right. Fun that's about the beauty that of it. Right. Yeah. And, but th- this is my point in the auction scene. They do that. Yeah. Yeah. They work together. That's why this insane insanity of, of Hoffman pretending that he, you know, speaks Arabic speaks, or all these different, Berber, you know, right, yeah. and, but Beatty is working the crowd as an inside shield. Cause he's still in disguise and it works on a comedy logic level, which I think s- saves it, but it's the two of them working together. Right. And That's then what why I think crucial. Right. Yeah. What I think is so telling is what, was on paper designed to be a big action sequence gets reduced to one bazooka and one helicopter and Charles Grodin stressing out behind a phone, right? Marty Freed has now gotten the map in the mail. He's negotiating the terms. Just that moment is so incredible when he says like, these are the terms. Can, uh, the the government w- will be handed over to yeah. uh, whatever Isabella Johnny's character. Sweeping social right. reforms. Sweeping social reforms uh, led by uh, uh, Shira Assel 
Also, Rodgers and Clark want a live album with a full promotional support. And just Grunt going, easy, easy, we can do that, we can do that. Then hanging up the phone and going, it's a disaster. I don't know what to tell you. They're trying to get us to release an album for these And then he picks up the red phone. I love that. Yes. So good. Yes, sir. Well, no, sir. Yes. Uh huh. Yes, sir. And and the Reagan picture in the background. But then it's like, what should be the big action sequence that would be where most of the money got spent? And for audiences would be like, who gives a shit? Instead is like an afterthought. And then the movie essentially ends with like another eight minute concert. Yep. Which is good. Which is, I love. Yeah. Perfect. It lets them do a victory lap. It's exactly what we want. That's where our bread is buttered, you know? And you know yeah. what? I think that, that, I think it works. The battle scene or lack thereof works because for the most part, um, there's not, there's a threat of violence. There is a threat of death. I mean, even, even in the, 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 the gunfight when they're running through the, the marketplace and stuff, I don't know if it ever shows anybody getting hit. I don't remember that's why for me, one of the, one of the shots that didn't work that I think they could have done without was, um, uh, uh Johnny's brother being basically eviscerated. Yeah, I agree. You know, that. early on. Um, but the fact that, you know, if they had fired off the rocket launcher and blown the helicopter out of the sky, it wouldn't have worked tonally with the, with the movie and i mean i don't know what else would have been in that big battle scene it um, it, it really helps that they had to scale it down and and lyle has the great line i'm reading here verbatim nothing ever happened to us and now we're gonna die out in the desert shooting at helicopters yeah and what is it that ain't that ain't poverty that ain't poverty that ain't po- and they're <laughs> laughing together and the team's back together yes uh, the the Amer- entire American military station in Ishtar, in Morocco, having to come to the concert so that they get the best audience response of their entire life, right? Uh, and the Grodin sitting at the table constantly trying to sell his, like, CIA higher-ups that they've made a good deal. <laughs> I also just... I, I think that, uh, like... Uh, someone making like a, a cop or a military soldier coming up behind you and being like applaud applaud i just think that's yeah. always funny so I, that, that, yeah just it reminds me of like I, i've always been interested in just like the history of our government trying to break up the mob mm-hmm. and in florida they the fbi ran a restaurant that the mob bosses, but like they had to like order supplies. They had to hire chefs. They had to design a menu, you know, just like to me, that is just so funny. Uh, Like getting ringers to show up and like be really into this, like live performance. Like that's hilarious. And then what I find genuinely pretty poignant, the, the shot of Isabella Johnny crying and Marty Freed asks her what's wrong. And she says, I just think they're wonderful. And to a certain degree, despite the fact that the movie's gotten a little disrailed by the two of them fighting over her, right? And like, well, I have to bring this back to her. Can I be there when you bring it back to her and all this shit? Uh, what they really wanted is what she's giving them there at this table, which is someone looking at them as if they're important artists, right? The movie ends on this note that, note that maybe the three of them are going to end up just being a throuple together, or maybe they'll just bet, cash in on the fact that she liked their music for the rest of their lives. That she's now a big fan. Right, that's all that matters. Right. They got one yep. person who looked at them the way they looked at each other. 
And then, yes, and then you just have that beautiful transition from them singing Dangerous Business to the, the Tower Records. Oh, God. Now, let's let's talk about David Putnam, the baby. Way this movie sort of got sandbagged by David Putnam. Do you want to leave this, David? David Putnam. Of course I do. David Putnam. So, David Putnam in Britain, a legendary uh, film producer. Uh, he's, I believe, he's a lord now. He's, he was, you know, mm-hmm. he's a, sort of a, a steam, you know, he produced. What did he produce, Griffin? Bugsy Malone, obviously Chariots yes. of Fire, that's his biggest hit, Midnight Express. A lot of like big British movies in the 70s Alan and 80s. Alan Parker, yeah. Yeah, Alan Parker. He's a lord now? He's a lord now, yes. What does that mean? Well, lord you know, of what? What is he a lord of? Classically, Ben, in Britain, like lords were like, you know, aristocrats, like they were landowners and you would pass the title, right? You know, you're like truly your classic aristocrat, right? Uh-huh. That has mostly been done away with. That's kind of, that's gone. I should hope so. <laughs> so now lords are basically just, it's it's just like you're like a fancy person who's done well in life it's decided and you get to be you get to sit in the house of lords and like it's it's like lower than being knighted being a sir but uh, it's like one of the honorifics uh, right it, well it's a political role you 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 have a role in government you're in the house of lords That's, it's what? it's so above weird. being knighted being knighted is just like you're great congrats because sure. this guy's probably also been knighted oh he has a cbe okay he didn't okay. quite make knighted but close um but being a lord is like that means you are politically involved enough that you want to sit in the house of lords and like listen to people read laws and be like yes yes no no you know anyway Okay. He's a lord. Well, this is my question for you then, not to get off track, but I need to I need clarification on this. Yeah. How would you know all of this? Uh, no. I'm not doing that bit. I'm not doing that bit. I'm not doing that bit. It's a serious question. It's a serious question. Okay. Christopher Guest also has lordship, right? Yeah, he is an, an a hereditary lord. Right. Okay, so that's my question. So some people are given lord as a title because of what they've accomplished in other fields, and other people have it passed down because of family lineage? It used to be the Christopher Guest thing, where it was, okay. you know, but in 1999, if you look up Christopher Guest, it puts it, it makes it clear that, that those seats were essentially abolished. So he is no longer, I believe he is still a baron. He still has yeah. like a title, an honorific title, but he does not get to uh, affect the laws of Britain anymore. <laughs> not that I think he ever made a big effort to do that. But here's the question. Could I be a lord of something? If you work hard enough. I am. Y- you are? You are? I'm You're not- a lord? Yeah. I uh, I paid 50 bucks. And <laughs> I, you think I'm Congrats. kidding? I'm I don't not, think you're I, kidding. I'm just I've amused. Got this, I've got this little tiny piece of sod, and I've got my lordship papers that I sent. Actually, it was a birthday sure. gift that my my wife got for me. But the point is, Ben, this you know, you said well, as it should be. It, they haven't, they didn't abolish it that long ago, up until recently, and a lot of it, at least in my interpretation, was economically driven. Because, you know, they these people had to give up their properties, mm-hmm. had to give up their castles, and had to give up all the... That's how I was able to buy my one square foot of sod. You, hey, congrats. This, I mean... Not bad if you Have you ever gone it. to look yeah. at it? No. I, oh, well, I was going to, but then this... That pandemic you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I'm sorry. Spoilers. Well, let's say the two big Putnam credits that are important are he does, he produces the movie Agatha, the Agatha Christie movie, which Dustin Hoffman comes in with a lot of script notes and he's supposed to play a supporting part and he makes himself essentially the lead of the movie. So Putnam 
has a bad experience with uh, uh, Hoffman. I'm trying to find this exact quote. He said something like... I have the quotes. I have the quote. Dustin Hoffman is the most malevolent person I've ever worked with. That is the quote. And he hates, so he hates Hoffman, calls him a worrisome American pest. That's the other other line he has for him. He also hates Warren Beatty when he... Because Chariots of Fire went up against Reds that year for Best Picture, and it defeats it. Was the underdog. It was the underdog. It was the sort of surprise winner. It's not as good a movie, I would say, as Reds. Um, but, you know, it's a likeable... That was ugly, too. That was an ugly, ugly public It fight. was ugly. Putnam wrote a, a, an op-ed piece for the LA Times saying why he thinks Reds represents the worst of what Hollywood is doing and overbum budgets and indulgence. Were you about to say this? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, the line I liked is that he told the press that Beatty ought to be spanked yes. for the budget of Reds. The, th- the thing that is truly staggering is to think about that people at the time were like, ugh, Warren Beatty churning out, you know, three hour, you know, over budget Hollywood pap about famous communists. <laughs> like yeah. now it would be like, Reds would be impossible. Even fucking Tom Cruise couldn't get Reds made. Nobody could get Reds made anymore. But also, like, for how much people talk about how awful fucking Oscar season politicking has become. In the early 80s, a producer of one nominated movie wrote an op-ed piece slamming another movie without ever identifying that he was the producer of a film up for the same award. Yeah. And Elaine May said in one of those retrospectives you were talking about from just recently that she said he was a putz. And she said, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, back then, because he was British, when British people spoke, we have this tendency to go, oh, he must be telling the truth. That, hey. must, that must be really real. Yeah, he sounds so smart. Meanwhile, they're not smart at all. <laughs> <laughs> and, Faye, and, and you know, meet the new boss, completely different from the old boss, yeah. obviously, because, you know, he'd been buddy-buddies with McElwain. And you've yes. got another who, to me, is, and, and I'm, I hope I don't offend anybody in his family, another putz was Faye Vincent, mm. who was over... Who was like a VP at Coca Cola or something, mm-hmm, right. and was over. He's the one who fires. Um, he, I mean, he eventually was the. He was a famously bad commissioner of baseball. Oh, terrible commissioner! But my least favorite right. commissioner of baseball. But I mean, he was he was ragging on it too. He was not yeah, supporting it. The thing is that Putnam comes in. He's only in charge of Columbia for a year because putting him in charge, like it as as the as the um the what's his name. Uh, Biskin piece puts it. Mm-hmm. It was like putting Jerry, Fa- making Jerry Falwell the mayor of San Francisco. Like, <laughs> why? Love that. Why line. would you? Why would you hire someone who's like Hollywood movies cost too much money and are stupid to run a Hollywood studio? Like, it doesn't make any sense. So he's out of the job within a year. Well, he was coming in to cut budgets. Right. He was coming in to cut budgets and stuff. But he, which... he also was grandstanding. I mean, he was coming in and saying like, "This town is rotten." Detroit has right. a crime, a cancer. That cancer is crime. Yeah, like, how are you going to form relationships with the people who make movies in Hollywood if you yes. call them all assholes? Like, this is not, you're not a fucking cop. Like, you know, you have to, like, make movies. Anyway, he comes in and he apparently made some sort of fuss of, like, well, I won't 
talk about Ishtar because I've, you know, I've had my clashes with Beatty and Hoffman. But then that just looks like he's burying the movie because he's essentially saying like, well, I can't say what I think of the movie. He did one thing before that. He, when he takes over and he's he does a big press conference and he's talking about tightening the belt and how Hollywood should be run, he goes like, we're going to change things at Columbia. Like, for example... Columbia just wrapped production on this movie called Ishtar, where Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, and Elaine May got paid $12 million in the desert. That is out of control. It ran amok. It was over schedule. We're not going to make movies like that anymore. That having been said, I will be taking no part in the post-production process. They're on their own. So he he sort of said, like, (laughs) he pointed it out as this is the poster child of what I'm trying to stop from happening again. That having been said, all the best. If the movie fails, it's on them because I'm not going to interfere an iota. And then he stops talking about it. But it immediately puts a bullseye on this movie's back, which added in with the fact that, like, Beatty had always been very hot style towards the press wouldn't let press visit the sets of his movies just all of it was sort of mounting against this film he also didn't button also say i haven't seen this movie and i never will yes he he openly admits he never saw the movie (laughs) that's the the whole story of ishtar right is so many people like oh god that thing stuck did you see it no why would i watch Ishtar? no what do you mean (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And and I'm not saying I don't think it's a perfect movie. I don't it's not my favorite Elaine Moon movie, I guess, although I love all her movies, so like who mm-hmm. cares? But it's pretty f- terrific and interesting and yeah. unusual and it's got these movie stars that I love like at this right you know like <sighs> I wish more movies were like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I wish Elaine May had made 10 more movies. Like even if the even if look maybe she just hated it and I I sympathize because yes there's all these stories of oh this was over budget no like you know she was clashing but like as we've talked about on this podcast and on this miniseries like that's the story of so many directors Mm -hmm. and you know she's being punished for being a woman and for being you know we we've I mean I feel Griff we've litigated this to death but you know right like I mean this is this is the oldest news I'll say I've repeated this in in all four of these episodes at this point but it's a necessary thing to repeat so at this 92nd Street Y I think someone asked her about the feeling of like being put in movie jail and never being allowed to make another movie again after Ishtar and she said I could have made another movie Like, maybe I couldn't have made exactly what I wanted to make, but I got offers after Ishtar. There are people who offered to produce things that I had written, you know, wanted to take them to screen. I just didn't want to deal with it anymore. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a wrenching... Yeah. yeah. Right. Maybe I couldn't have had an ideal career, but very much I chose to not give a shit about film directing anymore because who cares she's also the exact same person who broke up Nichols and may at the peak of their success because she yeah. was bored with how good things yeah. were so i mean she very much is a difficult person almost every director we've covered on this podcast is a difficult Assholes. person right almost everyone yeah, who gets to this level way. of a career is difficult eccentric weird ornery antagonistic in some way i think what is different and is how much less it was tolerated with her and how much more it was yeah. questioned with her. Whereas with male directors, it is very often seen as being part and parcel with their genius. Right. Because there were, there was very, there were very few yeah. other female. I mean, maybe you could say Streisand, you know, maybe. But, but Streisand was always, even if her movies were successful, she was always lambasted for. She's difficult. She's sure. egocentric. Sure. These movies are so big. Yes. So what I'm wondering is, is this, is, 
is is it fair to say that the criterion for being a successful director is part artistic but also part management and that yeah, there's sure. absolutely no question about her artistic skills her creativity mm-hmm. her humor but how much of the job is management how much of the job is running the production and my follow-up point is this is that the way it's supposed to be is that I, not I, the job of producers which gets back to my original point is sure. i think Beatty's the one that dropped the ball i think it should be laid at Beatty's feet yes. As funny as he is in this movie, he's the villain in that he's coming and saying, Elaine, I'm going to take all the bullets for you. Right. And then the second they start or whatever, early into filming, he's like, I don't get what you're doing here. Uh, should I take over? Like, yeah. you know, like, I mean, he he fails in that role. Because he says in interviews, it's in the Biscuit stuff where he's like, she's never had a good producer. I can be her good producer. Like, she never had someone, you know, sticking up for her to the studios. And then he fucking blew it. So my question is... Does that then also mean that Beatty erred in selecting her to do this movie? Do you know what I'm saying? No, no I th- I think, look. Yeah, I, you know, look, it's movies. Like, yeah. a lot of them, I feel like, were a pain in the ass to make. But at least the movie's there. It's, I don't know. it's also I don't one know. of these things, like, as much as the premise of this show is kind of auteur-driven, I feel like we constantly try to frame the conversations around how much these things are collaborative and how much the best elements of movies come out of friction. People coming in with different ideas than what the director mm-hmm. intended or what the script was originally meant to be and all that sort of stuff. That's part of the soup i think she's an antagonistic person elaine may i think that's part of the friction that drives a lot of her creative work i think that's tolerated far less from women and i think in a way that i find personally respectable but it was absolutely disastrous to her career when you talk about management versus artistry clint is she just had zero interest in playing the game at every single point in her life she just doesn't care she tells people exactly what she thinks you know she doesn't finesse things and she will just go to her grave with what she thinks is right. And I think that just made people go like, not worth it. And I hear these stories, you read these stories about Beatty questioning her and uh, Vittorio Satoro questioning her and all these people. And it does feel very similar to a thing I've experienced a lot on sets with female directors, where I just see them be given a lot less latitude and a lot less faith from their mostly male crews. You know, uh, regardless mm-hmm. of what they have or haven't done up until that point. I just I, I every time I worked with a female director, which I've gotten to do a lot on television in particular, uh, I, I will see those conversations where a female director goes and here's how I want to break it down. The cameras here, the shots here. We do this first. We do this second. The director walks off set and then I hear two crew guys going. She has no idea what she's talking about. Right. That makes no sense. Okay. And I just I just never really hear those conversations with male directors. So I think it, it the combination of being so strong-minded in what she wants to do, so unconventional in her process, uh, being someone who doesn't mince words and do- doesn't suffer fools, uh, and getting into very unwieldy, bizarre, ambitious productions with big egos, it, it's just a perfect storm for people to be, like, not worth it, you know? 
I, I do think she could have made another movie again if she wanted to, but I think it's a combination of maybe I just know at this point it wouldn't turn out the way I wanted to or they won't let me make the kind of movie I want to and, and life's too short and why not just put on a play off Broadway? Yeah, and I I appreciate that about her. I admire that about yeah. her. I I think... Legend, we stand. Sticking to your guns and not worrying about the commercialism or, or anything else. And like I said... It's one of the things I love about this movie is the chances it takes, um, you know, and 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 tries to do something a little bit different. I just, I just, I, I always think, God, what, what if? That's why you blew me away with the whole sequence of filming thing because I've always said, what? Oh man, what if? What if she had been as been allowed to or had felt like doing the 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 Ishtar part as brilliantly as she did the New York part where she had control of a handful of actors in a setting that she's familiar with New York and entertainment and stuff um and you know and the fact that they did them in the sequence you said absolutely blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, the biggest what if for me in the movie is just if she had taken Hoffman's note of, I think it should just be the New York stuff. I think you should rewrite the right. script and it should just be a character piece about these two guys doing music. That's the huge but what she if. She wanted for me. to go to the Middle East. She, this is yeah. her, she's interested in this. Yeah, but Beatty didn't do that. No, no, Beatty, Beatty supported that being her instinct. Yeah, but I don't think Beatty got it. You know, she no. wanted to call it Road to Ishtar. Yeah. And Beatty is the one who said, oh, no, 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 uh-uh, uh, because then they'll compare us to Hope and Crosby. Well, yeah, right. that, yeah, that's what you're doing. I don't think he got it. I, I think it's a weird, weird weird fucking movie that could only come out of this many strong personalities at this very specific point in all their careers having their own motivations and meeting somewhere in the middle in a way that everyone else viewed as calamitous and i think with time has sort of been reclaimed as you know if not an entirely great functional comedy an incredibly interesting one with stretches of of absolute brilliance i will say people are Agreed. at a loss if they never see it yeah yeah, it's agreed with that too. Absolutely worth seeing. Highly worth seeing. If you care about movies, if you care about comedy, it's an important And film. if you care about any of these actors, yeah. right, and Elaine May, obviously. Yeah. Um, but let's play the box office game, yes. please. Please, Griffin. I'm so begging it, you to play yes, the box office. It was supposed game. to come out Christmas. It got pushed back because of editing. It comes out in the spring. They May fifteenth, nineteen eighty seven. May was May that year. It was. It was. But it's also this is long before May is a bustling time at the box office. You know, sure. the summer has not yet started. So this is kind of a dead time at the box office. It should be dominating. But the target had been on their back for a long time in the press. Um, then they do a test screening and it kills. And Columbia debates yep. whether they should double down and try to promote it even harder. They kind of split the difference. They do release it pretty wide for that moment in time. It does fairly well the opening weekend, right? It opened to four million dollars. I do no. It did not do well. No, this movie did not do well. Yeah, it opened to four million dollars. It makes fifteen. It's out of theaters in a month, month and a half. And yes, it does open at number one, but it almost was number two to the gate, the number two movie at the box. <laughs> the, at the gate, the, the gate. Stephen Dorff, ladies know, and gentlemen. Right, a Canadian 
horror movie from New Century Vista. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that, that, like, I mean, like, so, like, you don't want to feel the gate breathing down your neck no. when you're Warren Beatty and you're doing your first movie in six years. It, it was not a right. good look. If you're Elaine May, you don't want to nearly be best at the box office by Tibor Takas. <laughs> Uh, that's the that is the name of the director of the gate. Yes, Tibor Takas. Tibor Takas, um, who uh, directed the pilot of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Correct. So we stand really. Yes. Um, yes. He also seems to have done. He did the Gate sequel, the Gate Two Trespassers. Well, of course. Uh, the Gate Three, limits. Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, he did. He did nineties Outer Limits reboot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, Number three at the box office, Griffin. So the gate's number two. Number okay. three is uh, a comedy starring a, a comedy star of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, we discussed him in our Zemeckis series, this actor, obviously. Uh, uh, collaborated with Zemeckis. Is it a Hanks movie? Not a Hanks. Not a Hanks. But he did collaborate with Zemeckis. He certainly did. On a very successful series of films. On a very su- successful series of movies? He's not Michael Douglas. DeVito. No. What? Come on now. Oh, Six, oh. a series of films. Oh, Michael by J. Robert Fox. Zemeckis. Michael J. Fox. What am I thinking? Mikey J. Uh, this is this is one of his his comedies where he's a wise he's a wise ass. Is and this he, you know secret of my success? It's secret of my success. Yeah. The secret of my success. Mm-hmm. Herbert Ross. Mm-hmm. Uh, have never seen with a great theme song. Great theme song. Okay. Never seen it either. I've been watching a lot of. Uh, uh, Siskel and Ebert worst of the year episodes on YouTube recently. Did they bag on it? They bagged on it. They said they found that film repellent, but they also like mm. the, the entirety of their 1987 worst of the year episode was them just drum rolling up to Ishtar. It was insane right. how hard they bagged on that movie. But yes, they yes. Ha- uh, Rosenbaum talks about how Ebert kind of hated Beatty's whole thing and his reluctance you know the press were yeah. like just sort of cut off and yeah maybe that played a role but they yes number four at the box office uh another comedy um with a new star who's coming over from television a new star coming over from television in 19 19- coming over from am i allowed to play oh yeah oh yes, yes. of course oh. I mean, you were you were there, Clint. I was a year old. Griffin is a glint Negative in his two. father's eye. Negative two. Uh, is this a Ted Danson movie? No, no. Uh, this is a guy who next year is about to have a, a sensational hit. 1988. Uh, this year, though, it, it's like this is a, a movie I would say mostly forgotten, was not uh, well-reviewed, but was mm-hmm. like a, a, a solid hit. Mm-hmm. And it's it's this, this actor and um, a female star who's like... Also, I would say, kind of on the up and up. And the next year... She just had a big hit. The next year, he blows up. The next year, he has his smash sensation. Right. So it's not Robin Williams. It's not Ted Danson. Is it someone whose TV show was in the 80s? Like, are they on TV at this point in time? They are. I mean, people forget, of course, that he was a big TV star, but he was. Yeah. Uh, Won an Emmy. It's not Bruce Willis, right? It is Bruce Willis. It Blind is Bruce Willis. Blind date. 
It's blind date. Blind date. You you caught Kim me off Basinger. guard there by thinking of him as a a comedy star, but of course it's the thing. But, but I course. mean, before Die Hard, Bruce yeah. Willis obviously he's the guy from Moonlighting, blind right? Date. You know, first and foremost. Yeah. Uh, blind date. Never seen blind date. Uh, what? It's what if there was a blind date, right? Like that is the premise, yeah. what right? What if the date were blind? Uh, Phil Hartman sets him up on a blind date with Kim Basinger. Like I I don't think there's a lot. I don't know what it's about. It's Blake Edwards, right? It's a late Blake Edwards movie. Right. Yes. Didn't like Bruce Willis did two Blake Edwards bombs before he got the life raft that was Die Hard. Yeah, uh Sunset is right. the immediate follow-up, right? right? That's another Bruce Willis. His Will. weird yeah. uh period gangster comedy. Right. Yeah. Uh Willis. Anyway, uh yeah, so that's a uh, number five Griffin. It's one of the biggest hits of the year. It's an action movie. In nineteen eighty seven. This series comes up all the time in the box office. It's a game. Rambo. And maybe we should do it. No, but maybe we should do this one on the Patreon, Griffin. We never talk about it. Do you know what? It didn't premiere this weekend, did it? No, it's been in theaters for uh, 11 weeks. Wow. I think I know. Take your shot, Clint. Lethal Weapon? It's Lethal Weapon. Yeah. Comes up a lot. With me- Wow. It comes up a lot. This or the sequels, Griff, they come up a lot. <laughs> when movies used to be in theaters for longer than four weeks. I know. They just run and run, especially this one. This was wow. a March release, right? Like, I don't think anyone thought it was going to be uh, such a colossal hit. Absolutely it made $120 not. million. It's only made 57 now. So it's got another. You know, it's going to double its gross over the next few months. Uh, wild. The argument against doing Lethal Weapon as a franchise is that Dick Donner is kind of coverable. Uh, yes, that's true. Yes, that's it's, true. It's right? a more contained right? filmography than I thought. I was, I've been watching the multiple cuts of the original Superman movie recently. Hell yeah. And it made me realize that Donner is kind of an interesting guy to put on the, on the chart for some point in the future. Have you done Blake Edwards? Edwards is too many, too many. Clint. Edwards is like sixty-seven wow. too movies, many movies. Clint. We 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 put him on our March Madness bracket and let people vote for him last year, but we kind of sabotaged him because we were like, we have no <laughs> idea how we could do it. He made so many goddamn. Could you movies. just do the Pink Panther movies? Well, yeah, we you could, could just, do something that's what like we could it, do. but he like quietly just made a bunch of noir movies in the fifties. You know, like he was just yeah. around. Oh God, L- listen, he he was one of the earlier directors of the year, like Peter Gunn. He was a writer and and director for the Peter Gunn episodes. Griff, I do think Donner would be good. It's a bit of a a slow middle there in between Superman and Lethal Weapon. But like, well, no, actually, no, because there's the Goonies. I just don't like the Goonies. I I want in on that one. I'm claiming I want in on that one. (laughs) You want the Goonies? Don't, Don't give that to another McElroy. Let me have that one. I mean, there's Lady Hawk, which there's so much. Oh, my God. With Lady Hawk. Uh, yeah, no, Donner would be good. It's an interesting career. I mean, he falls off at the end, but I still think it would be funny. Yes. Like, I still think, like... But it's, like, the the last two are shrugs. Yeah, but I still think... I think right? Timeline and 16 Blocks probably are funny to talk about. Like, Yeah, yeah, and the... Uh, right, and before they have Lethal Weapon 4, Conspiracy Theory, Assassins, Maverick. Maverick. Yeah, I mean, like, again, Laurie, none of these are masterpieces, but fun, fun to talk about, probably. All interesting, yeah. 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 What's his yeah. blank check? I guess it's it's, like... The toy. I mean, it's Superman, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would argue it's kind of the Lethal Weapon sequels, but also, (laughs) right? Superman is and it isn't. Yeah, yeah. And super and him being fired off Superman too. Yeah. Look, I mean, let's do it. Why not? Let's do it tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Tweet at us. Let us know what you think. (laughs) 
<laughs> and the only other thing we have to do, Griff, we're wrapping up here, but we got to, I mean, it's it's short, but oh, you sure. should rank Elaine yeah. May. I, I actually had a lot of trouble with this because I like them all. I do too. Uh, let Let's just say to Ben's point, if you uh, want us to do a Richard Donner miniseries, please uh, tweet us hashtag Donner Party. Um, and let's do. <laughs> but bring your own food. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's, do, let's do our May rankings. I think I can do this. It is difficult. It's difficult because I don't want anyone to feel bad for being in last place. That's all. Right. The, the difficulty for me is I think Heartbreak Kid is her most kind of perfect a whole film yeah sure but the stuff i like in ishtar i like so much that if we're we're gonna have a very different list i can right if we're if we're talking about favorites and that's all it is i probably go ishtar just because i i watch the first 25 minutes of this movie several times a year it's very good it's really a touchstone for me i go ishtar then heartbreak kid then new leaf then mikey and nikki but she's made four great movies I'm the same, but I flop the first and last, Griffin. Yeah. I'm Mikey yeah. and Nikki, Heartbreak Kid, New Leaf, Ishtar. But I yeah. don't want Ishtar to feel bad. Like, I don't want like, Mikey and Nikki to feel bad. It, 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 I don't yeah. care about the two of them. I would go with Ishtar number one. Hell yeah. <laughs> so that breaks the tie. Absolutely. Yeah. Clint, you broke the tie. And do you have Heartbreak Kid 2, would you Heartbreak say? Kid like, 2. Do you remember Heartbreak Kid? In? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I like, New Leaf. I like New Leaf. I like her... I like her acting in New Leaf. She's so good in that. Um, and Mikey and Nikki, I like, but I, I, I missed, I missed the jokes. I mean, I mean, it, I agree. Again, it, That's my whole thing. I think it's a great movie. I just, she's so good at comedy mm-hmm. that I want her having jokes in her movie. Nikki, you're making me forget the goddess. Well, that's fair true. enough. Yeah. Um, very quickly, David, you were saying how difficult it was to find a, a picture of their album mm. cover because you want it as your background. Here's a non-merchandise spotlight. The soundtrack for this movie was never nope. released. Nope. Drop that soundtrack. It's a Paul Williams soundtrack well, for wait, crying wait, wait, out wait. loud. It, doesn't Dave Grusin also do some music on it, too? Yeah, exactly. Like, where is this? Yes. And especially because the full songs were written, there have to be full recordings. They were filmed in full. I have, there's a website I think called ishtarthefilm.com where you can download MP3s that are just the rips of the audio. Wait, you own the website? No, I don't. I'm sorry. I, I sorry. structure my sense improperly. I have something that I downloaded from a website okay. called ishtarthefilm.com. Sure. They have a, a, a section that's the soundtrack where you can download MP3s that are just the rips of the audio from the film. So I have like a fake Rogers and Clark album where somewhere I got the JPEG <laughs> of the album cover and put it on my iTunes. And it's yeah. just the 15 second fragments of the songs, which I put on as a playlist and listen to those four minutes over and over again. It's great. Awesome. I also did just order. I found one on eBay. There was a promotional 45 cent. Really? Out. Oh, Right, that is just, back when they were hopeful. Right, but it's not uh, Dangerous Business. It's Little Darling. Oh, yeah, with the closing credits music. Uh, yes, and then the other one is... Let me see what the other song is. Oh, here. God, it's tell also, me the Mecca song is in there. I think it isn't. It's Little Darling, and the other one is... This is saying it's Little Darling on both sides. That's not correct. I forget what's on the other side, but anyway... Uh, it's Portable Picnic is on the other side. Right, right, which is funny, but like, just I'm just saying, Death Waltz Records, pick up 
the gauntlet release Ishtar Somebody on vinyl. Broadway, do the Ishtar musical. I mean, yes, uh, also do please. Ishtar the musical. It's ishtarthemovie.com, just FYI, if anyone wants to check this out. No, it's, it's a good a website. Right. It's your website. You should remember this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Clint, thank you so much for coming on the show. Clint! Oh, no. What a delight. Thank you. Very patient. Very patient guest. Seriously. Waiting so long oh, for this episode me. to happen. It was so. absolutely killing me. It was um, killing back me, for I'm the, telling you. For the Goonies. We can, we can talk about the Goonies anytime. <laughs> yeah. Uh, people should listen to Adventure Zone if they don't already. You doofuses, you should check out the Adventure Zone books, which you're very hands on and helping adapt those. Um, and they're awesome. Uh, with Carrie P, she's a great artist. Oh, she's uh, amazing. And the the Adventure Zone uh, cartoon show will be happening on Peacock at some point, right? So we got fingers crossed. We're we're working that. That's one of the things that kind of resonated when I was you know doing a lot of the research, you know, and reading about you know, the process. And I, and I've heard you tell stories, uh, Griffin, just about how stuff gets made. It's, it's really fascinating. And it you, is you, nonsensical. And you, you can't really talk about it, <laughs> but yep. I mean, um, you know, all the way from, and I love that stuff. It's like, you know, pitch meetings and that I, I find that absolutely fascinating fascinating and and but it's the stuff in between where you just go like what why does this work this way why are these people asking these questions (laughs) oh i have stories next time we're in the new york bar together i will tell you guys Uh, that that is truly a thing to look forward to (laughs) um let's also announce our next mini series that's the last thing we gotta do because at this point, we'll know who won March Madness, but we got one more miniseries we're going to do before whoever wins March Madness, and it is... Which we're so excited that... John Carpenter. One, that's so awesome. I mean, like, are you guys not oh, looking forward I mean, to... John Carpenter. That's going to rule. That's going to be <laughs> so cool. I, ha- I, I I have to admit, Ben, I, I'm pretty... I was surprised that they beat... Gore Verbinski. In the final two, but obviously, absolutely, up until I that didn't point, see that coming at all. No, but but they kind of had the road paved for them because I mean, them going up against both Spike Jones and Ernest Dickerson in an historic three way mega match and the oh, Elite Eight—that was a cakewalk. Yeah, totally, oh totally, yeah. totally, totally. Yes, uh, but let's say someone who is not in the March Madness bracket, uh, but we're covering next is to date still the youngest director ever nominated for an Academy Award, a record he is very likely to hold for a very long time, if not indefinitely. I don't know, yeah, not a lot of 22-year-olds going to get nominated for fucking Best Director. Yeah, no. definitely. You want to talk about major success at the beginning of your career, and a, a career that I think because of... of checks, yes. Yeah, the weird directions it took later on, uh, despite the fact that he died far too young and far too soon, uh, has not necessarily been reappraised in the way it should. We're talking John Singleton, baby. That's wow. Right. Another one we've just been long, oh, man. a yes. long mold mini. So excited. It's going to be good. So excited. Uh, get to talk right. John Only Singleton. 90 kids will understand. I mean, I yes. know that, you know, he made movies uh, past the 90s, but whew. Well, and one of them finally lets us talk about the Fast and Furious franchise proper on this podcast. Um, we should mention we have a, a special one-off next week, right? Do we? No. Do we? Oh, yes, we do. We That's do. right. We do. We do. That's we do. right. That's next week. We decided... This was a short miniseries, Elaine May. We thought four was the shortest miniseries we'd ever do. And then we said, what if we did an even shorter miniseries? Mm. Mm. 
Mm. Next week, great director. we are doing our first ever one episode miniseries on a, an important American director who has only directed one film. Ball's in his court if he wants his miniseries to continue at a later point in time. And we'll have to cover it. We have to. At this point, we are beholden. Next week, we are, of course, talking Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Don John with the boys themselves, Sean and Hayes from Hollywood Handbook. Oh. I mean, we... we... We all knew that this was coming. On it was inevitable. <laughs> it was inevitable. Da- David's been pushing it for years. I've just been like, when are we getting the boys on to yeah. talk, John? And it's going to happen. My boys, my ride, uh, yeah. my porn, my girls. That's what David says every Everyone night. loves a happy ending. Yes. That's the... Uh, the tagline for Don John. We're gonna, we're gonna get, we're gonna dig into it, guys. That's next yeah. week, though. And then Hollywood Singleton, Handbook, blank check, crossover, then Singleton, and then whoever wins March Madness. Yes, but we're definitely doing a Space Jam two episode too. Oh yes, Space Jam: A New Beginning with James Newman, my brother. Thank you all for listening, Clint. Thank you for being here. It was indeed my pleasure. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to I will, Joe. Griffin. Oh, I, I thought I, you were specifically speaking no. to me. <laughs> the, right, these, okay. these are things I want to say to you, Clint. And yes. it's very important that you process this. Okay. It would mean a lot if you could personally thank Joe Bowen and Pat Reynolds for our work. Oh, Joe, Pat, you're gods. And, and Clint, I, I really think it would hit home if you thanked Lee Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song. I, I, I would be glad to. Thank you. And like, it's... It's maybe too much to ask, but if you want to maybe just start referring me as Chain Lord, like just throwing that mm. out as maybe a new sort of moniker or title, that would be really cool. Chain Lord? Mm-hmm. Chain Lord. Lord of okay. Chains. Yeah, uh, a, I'll do t- that, Lord of Chains. Just, yeah, it just really rolls yeah. off the tongue, doesn't it? It's good. clean. It's clean. This is 2021 <laughs> rebranding. Uh, of course, Clint, just a few more things I'm going to just remind you of in passing. Yes. Uh, if you're looking for some real nerdy shit, I would recommend maybe going to blankies.reddit.com. If you're looking for some real nerdy shirts, I'd maybe recommend checking out our Shopify page. Mm-hmm. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media. And thank you to our editing team, Alex Barron, AJ McKeon. Um, and uh, go over to our Patreon where we're covering the uh, the Star Trek movies, where, where we're voyaging home at this point. Consider me a Patreon. Oh uh, yeah, uh, where what are we doing at this point? It's April twenty fifth. Uh, yeah, we're about to. Uh, well, we just we're on the final frontier. The last one's coming up. Undiscovered country. Yeah. Wow. Well, let me just let me just tell people this. Spock dies. Oh, oh he does. Rip. Just wanted to tell you. That's oh, that's boy. the kind of guy I am. That's how I roll. Um. That's uh. That's uh, our episode on Ishtar. Tune in next week for Don John. And as always, there's never been a hit song with the word herb in it. Okay, I'm going to try this. This is going to be perhaps the most ambitious opening I've done yet, but I'm going to try it. It's going to be ambitious because I'm going to try to do it myself rather than asking you to do it. If you feel like you know how to accompany me, then you can, David. I won't. I mean, I, I, I not, not out of uh, like uh, grumpiness. I just, I know I can't. And I don't ben, have the words. Ben, I just want you to place this at the end of the episode so people knew the risk I took.
Okay? All right. Okay.